still have my sister's Barbie from, I don't know when. It has blue eyeliner. It has wigs. Oh, yeah. Fashion Fair Barbie it. or whatever. Yeah, yes. I have it in a box. Did you play with Barbies, Emily? Yeah. Uh, kind of, do you remember any of them? Big Barbie house and a cor the Corvette and everything. Never the hamster got stuck in because yes! Jacob and Emily put the freaking hamster on a Barbie cord. Oh my god. I never owned a Barbie. Pauline had, remember this, Mitzi? It was like Barbie was a flight attendant. Yes. And it was this big, like, plastic thing. And what it was is you'd open it up and it was a first class cabin. No way. Yes, and oh, Barbie man. was dressed. And it was wow. just a big plastic thing that was a first class cabin. Is that like not like elitist or what? <laughs> I got mad at my sister one time and she like for Christmas got Barb little known Barbie's little sister. Skipper. Skipper. Well, I got mad at my sister and my textural thing came about. I chewed her foot off. Oh my God. That thing is probably worth like $30,000 now, the original Skipper. Because remember, this is early 70s. Well, like without a Good foot, God. it's worth nothing. <laughs> and I did it. I did it. I chewed Skipper's foot off. Hannibal in the making. Exactly. Shit I did as a kid, no regrets. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old. Country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Well, welcome all of you back and wish you a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, etc. Kwanzaa, Festivus, Winter Solstice, Tuesday, whatever your jam is. <laughs> Saturnalia. We're in, we're, in, we're in it to win it. We like all of them. But I just want to remind you all that life in plastic, it's fantastic. That is the song that I've been singing all week. And whether you're plastic or not, I hope your life is fantastic right now. And if you are sitting around wishing you were plastic, winter will be over soon and it will be nice to be a mammal again. I hate the cold. I'm so sorry. I hate it. I saw snow for the first time. That tells you a lot about where we live. <laughs> It snowed here. Like, it's stuck. We made a snowman. It was fun. I like it every 30 years. <laughs> Let's dispense with all the business this episode. Go see our website and things. Because this is our tangentially related Christmas episode. Yeah. This is how we celebrate the holidays. Here at Just a Story. We're like, what's Christmas? Toys. <laughs> and what is the most bitched about toy in history? Red Rider BB gun? No, that's just that movie playing over and over again. <laughs> love that movie. I do too. But they play it for 24 hours. The Cabbage Patch doll that would eat children's hair. Oh, well, that's, an, uh, that's a legitimate concern. Let's, let's cut those out too. My sister had one of those. And yet she has hair. True. It's true. No, like what is the most corrupting influence bad for you toy ever? iPhone. Okay, well, that's our opinion. Come on. You're not playing right. You're not thinking right. 
I can't think of anything that's not a male masculine toy. Oh, right. I'm sorry. I forgot your programming. So it's Barbie. Barbie. Everyone hates Barbie. Everyone hates that bitch. I love Barbie. She's got everything. I love Barbie. I'm such a bad feminist. I love Barbie. But that's just all due to your programming. Yeah, totally. Or maybe your hormones. It's my hated baby dolls. I only like Barbies. But everyone knows that Barbies are just corrupting the Utes. I don't know when exactly it became fashionable to really hate Barbie for any number of reasons. I do. When? The 70s. Oh, yeah. Women's lib. They literally carried the signs that said, I'm not your Barbie. Um, yeah, I guess that was it. My mom wasn't a women's liber, as my dad affectionately calls them. So I was allowed to play with Barbies. But whether it's that she's vapid and empty-headed, that she is too blonde and white, that her body promotes unrealistic expectations of what being an adult will be like, that she's too materialistic, or that she's too sexy. She's just a sex doll. She's just a sex doll. No one really has nice things to say about Barbie. So where did Barbie get her start? As a sex doll. Oh, shit. (laughs) So Bill Lilly was a German predecessor to the Barbie that inspired Ruth Handler to create her famous doll. Now, Bill Lilly was first created in 1952, and she was based on a comic strip character by Reinhard Buten. And it was in a Hamburg newspaper called Bild Zungtug. The Bild Lily became very, very popular. And so she was immortalized in plastic. And she was sold as a novelty item. A novelty item? Yes, and this is according to Ruben Gerber, the author of Barbie and Ruth. What would you do with said novelty Barbie? <laughs> well, they were sold in places like tobacco shops or like adult, in quotation marks, gift stores. Is this like one of those sex dolls? It's not a blow-up doll. And it, like that's when you hear this, that's probably where your mind goes. But she was like a little tchotchke. Like she was just a little little tacky gag gift. Like a lot of times people would give them to men who were getting married or whatever. Like this is the only other woman you'll be able to touch. Yeah. <laughs> Or like, you don't have a girlfriend, here's a build lily. There are a lot of pictures of like pilots with them on their control panel or like men would put them on their dashboard. They're like a mud flap girl, but not. So did she look like what we think of as Barbie today? Yes, strikingly so. Oh no. (laughs) She was about a foot tall though. She was a little taller than Barbie and she did have boobs, boobs. And a platinum blonde ponytail. And her legs were different, though. Instead of having those tiny little feet that you can take all the little tiny shoes off of. The pointy feet. The pointy feet, yes. The ones that look like they're they're bound. Yes, those. Her legs were molded into the shape of shoes. You know, and like painted black on the ends. Like a modern action figure. Yeah. And so, in the comics, Lily, this character, was very witty, irreverent, and sexually uninhibited. One strip that shows Lily covering her naked body in a newspaper and explaining to a friend, we had a fight and he took all the presents he gave me. (laughs) Another shows Lily in a bikini and a policeman tells her that two-piece swimsuits are illegal and she says, oh, in your opinion, which part should I take off? Oh my. (laughs) So she's a tart. You know, like she's she's a mess. I like her, but whatever. She started out being very racy, adult gift. But then 
when bachelors got married after their bachelor parties and had children, their kids ended up playing with her. Hmm. I mean, she's not, she's not like anatomically correct or anything. She's just a doll. But, but just think about it this way. It's like, hey, kids, go to this at the adult store. Why don't you go play with it? Thanks, Matt Lauer. Aww. What was that gift wrapping like? So kids would steal her, and she did have different outfits, which I find is very interesting. But while on vacation in Switzerland, Barbara Handler saw one of these. And this is the daughter of Barbie's creator, Ruth. Okay, what kind of store were they in? I'm guessing like a tourist shop, like a just a, you know, like a gas station shop. I don't sure. know. Sure. I'm not asking too many questions. Bad influence. <laughs> and she was like pretty done with dolls by this point. She was around 15 years old. But she wanted to take Lily home and keep her as a keepsake in her room. She showed her mom. She's like, I would like one of these. And her mom was like, we'll take three. And so Ruth and Barbara brought build Lily back to California. And there the brainstorm began. You may be saying, who is this Ruth Handler woman you keep talking? So she's kind of... For all intents and purposes, Barbie's mom. You mean Barbara? I mean both. Oh, yeah. So she was the youngest child of 10, and she was born to Polish immigrants, the Muscos, and she grew up in Denver, Colorado. Now, her mother was very tired by the time her 10th child came along, and she actually got very ill after Ruth was born. 10 kids will do that to you? Yes. She was so ill at the time, in fact, that Ruth went to go live with her sister, who was 20. Because she'd been having children forever. When her sister found out that she would not actually be able to have children herself, and her mom was like, I'm real tired, they just kind of agreed that she would stay with her sister and her sister's husband. And she attended college in Colorado in the 40s, and eventually she moved out to California to work at Paramount Studios. She went to Hollywood. She didn't want to be an actress or anything. She wanted to be on the executive side. Oh, okay. That's different. I'm going to get on this bus. I'm going to take it all the way to California. And I'm going to be a film executive. What is wrong with you, woman? Good Lord. But she marries her high school sweetheart. Now, she had moved to California because she was afraid they were getting too serious too fast and wanted to focus on her career. But he dropped out of school and followed her. His name was Isidore Elliott Handler. And she was 19 when they wed. And she told him she hated his name Isidore, and she preferred Elliot, which was his middle name, and so he started going by that after they got married. So she's the HBIC. Oh, totes. (laughs) So they married, and they had a son named Ken and a daughter named Barbara. Wait, Ken? Really? Yes. And so Barbara would be the one who would see what the New York Times would call in Ruth Handler's obituary... A sex doll. See. Or sex toy. It's excuse a me. sex toy. It's a sex toy. In Switzerland. And pointed out to her mother and spawned this American icon. Barbie. So when they saw Lily, it was 1956. And by 1959, Ruth's dream had come to fruition. On March 9th, Barbie, named for Barbara, debuted at the International Toy Fair in New York. Was it a raging success? Hmm. Well, the hopes were high because Mattel, which had been founded by Ruth and her husband, Elliot, as well as an early partner named Matt Matson, Matt, Elliot, Elliot, Mattel. Mattel okay. yeah. Yeah. Um, Where's Ruth's name? It was really hard to work in. We'll get there later. I can't believe she let that pass. I think she recognized the good branding. But they had had really 
strong early success in the toy industry. And they'd been working in plastics, kind of transitioning out of tin toys and things like that into plastics, which were more durable, more workable. They had a big following by this 1959 toy fair. The buyers for major retailers, not surprisingly, given the constant stream of controversy and criticism that has followed Barbie all of her days, did not take her very seriously, mainly because of her figure. Her male competitors laughed her out of the room. Nobody, they insisted, would want to play with a doll with breast, according to Time magazine. (laughs) Only German bachelors. Exactly. However, 350,000 were sold in the first year. And a legend was born. Fun fact... One of these first-run Barbies in her box sold for $24,750 at auction at 2016. Oh, my God. But her blue book value is around 8000 Oh, well, only 8000 That's like the difference between a Vespa and a Camry. <laughs> Maybe a pink Chrysler Sebring convertible. <laughs> exactly. You can have that or you can have Barbie. Which do you pick? The pink 1988 Chrysler Sebring convertible. <laughs> liar i want that barbie you mean with the side eye i love that bitchy side eye people can bitch all they want i love that bitchy side eye but anyway so this is from time magazine's all swell at mattel this was written at, in 1962 at a time when mrs handler was the 45 year old executive vice president overseeing manufacturing and administration again this is from 1962 and she has this job we've seen mad men we know that shit doesn't fly. Yeah, remember what Joan had to do to get that job? Yeah, I don't think Ruth did that. But this year, the projected earnings for Mattel were $80 million. Damn. Yeah, so they're doing okay. Time begins. The Handlers aim for well-made, moderately priced toys. One Mattel innovation was the mass-produced music box mechanism that has now gone into 60 million toys, ranging from guitars to lullaby cribs. Another gold mine, a miniature voice recording... That Stan's rough handling allows Mattel's chatty Kathy doll to speak 11 phrases and a $48 rocking horse to Winnie. $48? What is that, like $300? Bajillion dollars. Mattel's biggest success has been the Barbie doll, a more or less scale model of a busty teenager, which appeals to little girls because it looks grown up and to their parents because it's inexpensive. Made in Japan to save on labor costs, the Barbie doll, which now has a boyfriend named Ken, is priced at $3, which is around $25 in 2016. Uh, The retail has become, according to Ruth Handler, the greatest phenomenon to ever hit the toy business. Mattel also offers, separately, a Barbie wardrobe, ranging from lingerie up to a $5 wedding gown. Lingerie? Yes, and I thought it was really. Like, did you have lingerie? I for didn't. Your Barbies? No, my, bar- my Barbies didn't. I had some of my sisters. Older. Older. Stuff. Yeah, my sisters were eighteen and fourteen when I was born, so they had vintage Barbies, and I had some of their things, and it was like little slips and that kind of stuff. So she had like bras and slips back in the day. Back in the day, she absolutely did, and she came with like a little guide when you would buy the lingerie that like told you how to fasten the bras and like what order to put things on in and how to do this and how. And a lot of women said that's how they learned how to wear lingerie was from Barbie's guides. But the article goes on. Barbie and her wardrobe reflect a favorite Mattel device that Elliot Handler calls the razor and the razor blade technique. Explains Handler. You get hooked on one and you have to buy the other. Buy the doll. Then you buy the clothes. 
I know a lot of parents are going to hate this, but it's going to be around a long time. Parents, in fact, get scant sympathy from the handlers, whose advertising is admittedly designed to evoke the razor razor blade urge in children, says Elliot Handler unapologetically. We feel it's up to the parents to handle the child. So basically, we can blame Barbie for all of these accessories sold separately. Yeah, and like all even the microtransactions in video games now. It's all Barbie's fault. Great, because she needed more pile-on. It's probably the one thing she really does deserve. But Ruth was well aware that the breast would be a source of controversy, and she gave exactly no fucks. In a 1977 interview, she says, Every little girl needed a doll through which to project herself into the dream of her future. If she was going to do role-playing of what she would be like when she was 16 or 17, it was a little stupid to play with a doll that had a flat chest. So I gave her beautiful breast. Wonderful. (laughs) So let's take a moment to realize that Barbie was born of a German sex doll. Yes, I got that part. And a glass ceiling shattering early female executive. There's nothing more American than this story. (laughs) No. And like with these two moms, Barbie's gonna be fucked up. You know, (laughs) like they're the odd couple. They're the antithesis of role models are yeah, two sides completely of the opposite ends of the scale. So at first, people were, were a little freaked out by the lady bits. Sure, the first few years seemed harmless enough. There were things like first date Barbie or sorority meeting Barbie, and they flew under the radar. And the teenage fashion model, as she was originally marketed, sold very, very well. She dipped her toe into this controversy pool for the first time in the 1960s by introducing her friend, Colored Francie. Um, I'm sorry. Colored Francie. Is that one where the color of the hair changes when you get it wet? No. Is it one that comes with a coloring book? No, it's Barbie's first black friend. Barbie's only black friend? (laughs) She has two black friends. The other one shows up soon. No, Christy and Francie. Do they drop the colored? (laughs) They eventually do drop the colored. But, you know, this is during the civil rights movement. It's kind of progressive for Barbie to have a black friend. Sure. Oh, come on. Really? You're going to say everybody already knew better and they were just pretending? Call her colored? (laughs) I don't think it was quite as offensive then at that moment. Sure. I don't think they meant it to be ugly. Now it makes my skin crawl. But even that was mostly fine. That, like, nobody really flipped out over that. Because you had the option not to buy her. But in the 1970s, people began to find her far less groovy. The livers. The livers came. So in the 1970s, feminists really did not care for Barbie. She was burned at Berkeley. What wasn't burned at Berkeley? She was burned with a Norman Mailer novel. Because he's a sexist asshole, apparently. Probably. But I'm like, so are all authors. And then the New York Times in Ruth Handler's obituary says that when the feminists began criticizing her, Barbie suddenly got better careers. And this is just not true. This is actually the opposite of what really happened. I'll tell you all about it later. But then we start to get the body critiques. There's a massive collection of complaints about how no woman is shaped like Barbie. But the chief objection of feminists, including the National Organization for Women, was that Barbie's figure created unrealistic expectations for young girls that could lead to low self-esteem. People often joke that Barbie's measurements were not humanly possible. But in fact, it was determined that if the 
11 and a half inch doll were 5 foot 6, her measurements would be 39, 21, 33. One academic expert calculated that a woman's chances of having Barbie's figure were less than 1 in 100,000. Exactly. 39, 21, 33. Yeah. 21 inch waist. It's nothing. I can't imagine being 5'6". Put your preformed feet into some 6 inch heels and you'll be good. But Handler poo-pooed this. She said, my whole philosophy of Barbie was that through the doll, the little girl could be anything she wanted to be. Barbie always represented the fact that a woman has choices. And I would pause here just for a second and say that we are too willing to forget our foremothers of feminism and write women whose challenges to the status quo did not conform to our modern ideals out of feminist history. She wasn't burning bras, but she was definitely breaking glass ceilings. She really was. I'm very impressed with Ruth, and I like that turn of phrase. In some ways, I think we forget how bad it was for women. You know, there was a woman who was ordered out of a courtroom. I've written a lot about this. For coming to pay a traffic fine in, in pants. She was held in contempt of court, and that was in, like, 1968. Pants? Well, your mom still talks about when she got pants. How excited she was about her pants. And now she refuses to wear dresses. Yes, and like, I think it's hilarious. the fanciest of events. Well, she wear a dress. And she hates when I wear dresses. But anyway, now that we've kind of remembered that it sucked even more for women than we want to acknowledge... We must take a further moment to admire the contradictions of Ruth Handler's life. I think that she had probably accepted that she was going to go down in history as the boob lady. She made the boob doll, the sex toy, the anti-feminist icon. Don't call her that. I love Barbie. That was sarcasm. (laughs) She began a second career later in life and founded Nearly Me, which was a company that produced prosthetic breasts for cancer survivors. Recognizing the irony, Ruth said, I've lived my life from breast to breast. So she found out that she had breast cancer in 1970 and that she was going to require a mastectomy. And she said it was impossible to find an acceptable replacement breast. Until now, she said in 1977, every breast that was sold was used interchangeably for the right and left side. After developing a line of artificial breasts made from foam and silicone that she called Nearly Me, she became a well-traveled advocate for the early detection of breast cancer at a time when there was little public discussion of the disease. So that's another thing to consider here is that it was impolite to talk about breast cancer in public. Yeah, you can't talk about breasts. Right. And she did have the people who worked on Barbie design the plastics and stuff for her breast prosthetic. Ms. Handler, who once described herself as a marketing genius, was often known during those years to open her blouse at interviews, and ask a reporter or a photographer to feel her breast and determine which one was real. She ran the breast prosthesis company, Ruthton Corporation, finally got her name in it, for 15 years, fitting women, including Betty Ford, former first lady, for the artificial breast herself, before selling it to a division of Kimberly Clark. Her husband said she loved the work, but she never made much of a profit. She was working on that from the heart. She died in 2002 at the age of 85. So Miss Handler is definitely a contradiction. She is, but she's like all about femininity, preserving it, elevating it, celebrating it. She goes from trying to inform young girls about how to imagine themselves as grownups to helping grown women feel comfortable in their own skin after a severe blow to the idea of the feminine self, which I find kind of poetic and interesting. It is. and So Barbie has gone down as the classic girl toy she is the girl toy Mm -hmm. 
without a doubt. Pink aisles, everything. Yes. But toys have been marketed to girls and boys since they have mass-produced toys. So toys for girls from the 1920s to the 1960s focused a lot on domesticity and nurturing. And one researcher looked at Sears Roebuck catalogs to look at what was being advertised to kids and how they was being advertised. Now, one ad from 1925 for a toy broom and mop set said, Mothers, here's a real practical toy for little girls. Every little girl likes to play house, to sweep, and to do mother's work for her. Now, toys from that era for boys emphasize this preparation for working in the industrial economy. For example, a 1925 ad for an erector set stated, Every boy likes to tinker around and try to build things. With an erector set, he can satisfy the inclination and gain mental development without apparent effort. He will learn the fundamentals of engineering. Infotainment. So gender-coded toy advertisements like this really declined. In the 70s. The 70s. Now, besides just the women's liberation movement, there were also a lot more women in the labor force. And after the baby boom, marriage and fertility rates had dropped significantly. So in the Sears catalog ads from 1975, less than 2% of toys were explicitly marketed to either boys or girls. Blows my mind. Not only that, but they also were actively challenging these gender stereotypes. Having boys playing with domestic toys and girls like on a chemistry set advertisement and building and doing these kind of masculine, quote, roles. So what happened? Because we know that's not true today. Well, it's kind of, I mean, to me, it's funny because it's like what people are trying to do today. Mm -hmm. It's like that movement's just everything cycles. Nothing (laughs) new under the sun. Well, the 80s happened. Oh, Archie Bunker. No, not Archie Bunker. Ronald Reagan? No. Who? My Little Pony. What? Yes. Hasbro. Yes. Okay, so like people realized that you could create little shows, little TV shows pretty cheaply. Also known as commercials. Basically. And just sell your stuff using the commercial property that you own. Yeah, they were basically creating 30-minute commercials. And this all happened after there was rollbacks on strict regulations for children's television. Thanks, Ronnie. And so there definitely was some backlash towards feminism as well. Okay. So people that grew up without, for example, Barbie... Their moms wouldn't let them play with them because they were women's libbers. They would say, well, I didn't get to play with this. So my girl's definitely going to get Barbies. Perfect. And you also saw this change in what was seen on TV, but also the toys that came out of it. You started getting these really fantasy roles. So you used to have like G.I. Joe and doctors or like nurses or astronauts Mm -hmm. and... Now you had He-Man uh-huh. and you had princesses mm. and superheroes. Right. And that became your kind of stereotypical boy-girl toys. These are more fantasy-based than reality-based toys. Because like you were saying, Ruth Handler was like, Barbie is something where girls can try on these different roles mm-hmm. in their role-playing. And now we have more of these 
fantasy characters. Right. And so they're serving a different purpose. Yeah, and like no boy wants to be the prince from Little Mermaid. Like that's not an attractive role. Like he's just not that interesting. Well, no. He's just a cardboard cutout. Exactly. So when you move into the space that's completely focused on like one character or one color palette, like in My Little Pony, it does just inherently become more gendered. Why why do you think that is? Why does moving it into a fantasy space make it more easy to gender? Well, so think right now, like a man or a woman could be an astronaut or a doctor or a soldier or a fireman. Cool. Now, in general terms, bear with me, talking about general society, like a boy cannot be a princess or a pony. Brony, man. Bronies. I know. That's such a good doc. Bronies is a really good documentary. It's almost like they went there to escape gender politics. Like you go to the fantasy world to escape the domestic sphere. To get out of the, the doldrums of, you know, real life. I mean, honestly, I think some of it is marketing. Like, how many doctor toys can you make? Versus if you come up with some new kind of space ranger, mm-hmm. then you have the exclusive rights to that. And I really think that's more what it is than anything. I'm just wondering it's why money. they cut it in half by only marketing to boys or girls. That seems stupid from a marketing point of view. Like, I mean, think about it. Like, we, Paw Patrol, like, little one loves Paw Patrol. And that's not boy or girl. Or, like, PJ Mask or whatever. You know, there are a lot of kind of fantasy shows today that definitely try to be more gender neutral. It seems like it's really weird that they went... Like, so strict in it? Yeah, because, like, Transformers versus My Little Pony, which, first of all, would watch that fight. Oh, yeah. Also. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, like, could it be? Rainbow Bright is going to kick Optimus Prime's ass. Totes for show. But, like, they could have done cool horses that everybody liked and cool robots that had some girls. I mean, there were some things that crossed the line. You know, Care Bears was something that like was liked by boys and girls. Yeah, there were things, but just some of the biggest stuff that sticks that Hasbro is able to make movies out of today. <laughs> yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for that. We all want Shia LaBeouf and Megan Fox back in our lives and Michael Bay. So in the 80s, we do have the backlash. We had these like extended commercials, extreme target marketing, rollback on children's television regulations, and... We get very strictly color-coded aisles of toys yet again. Yeah, so by 1995, in that Sears catalog, gendered toys made up about half of the catalog's offerings, the same proportion as during those interwar years. Despite the fact that they've moved into fantasy land, and they don't even have the guise of, like, gender role conformity preparation, we still need gendered toys. And we've completely abandoned this career preparation idea, or almost, which makes the history of Barbie's careers over time so much more interesting. The New York Times said that it was the women's love movement that changed everything, right? Yeah, they're wrong. They're so wrong. I find that very interesting. I need the New York Times' fake news. Just this once. Just this once. No, not just this once. (laughs) So from Barbie's website... When you click on the little careers button, it takes you to this magical place and it's all pink font on white background. I'm sure it is. <laughs> it says, with more than 150 careers on her resume, from registered nurse to rock star, veterinarian to aerobics instructor, pilot to police officer, Barbie continues to take on 
aspirational and culturally relevant roles while also serving as a role model and agent of change for girls. She first broke the plastic ceiling in the 1960s as an astronaut. She went to the moon four years before Neil Armstrong. In the 1980s, she took to the boardroom as day-to-night CEO Barbie, just as women began to break into the C-suite. And in the 1990s, she ran for president before any female candidate ever made it onto the presidential ballot. Da-da-da! Ah, plastic ceiling. I see what you did there. Isn't that cute? It's cute. So Barbie initially was marketed as a teenage fashion model. So that's like her original job, I guess. And this was the $3 version, and we all have seen it around, I'm sure. She wore this, like, strapless bathing suit that was black and white stripe. And there was a blonde or a brunette version. They were both white girls, obviously. And she wore her hair in a ponytail and had fire engine red lips and dark eyeliner and one arched eyebrow and mad side eye and tiny little shoes. And she came with cat eye sunglasses. She was very, very cool. But her outfits were sold separately, and they ranged from $1 to $5. And all of these had, like, real working zippers and buttons and clasps, etc. They were meant to be real miniature fashion. And they were modeled on each season's runway looks. Mattel's in-house Barbie fashion designer, Charlotte Johnson, would actually go to Paris and go see the shows and come back and do Barbie's designs. Your dream job, you mean? Yes, it is. She had a variety of accessories as well, like jeweled necklaces and earrings. Nothing was cheap. It was only high quality fabric and everything was tailored with linings and layers of slips and things like that. And everything was hand sewn in Japan. A lot of things have changed. It's all Velcro and bullshit now. So soon after her debut, Barbie grew grew up and joined the numbers of women who were working outside the home. She's working nine to five. What a way to earn a living. She's got Dolly Parton's figure. I think Dolly Parton's shorter than her. Anyway. I think Barbie's 11 inches tall. Fine. Sorry. Scale model. In 1960, fashion designer Barbie appeared, and it's a classic girl job, sure, but this was a moment for Barbie because of what it said to girls. Imagine yourself outside the home. She carries a portfolio with her designs in it, and she wears a pretty pink suit. In 1961, there was a registered nurse Barbie. Okay, kind of another girl job. But had it ever been glamorized before? Right, no, that's true. And I thought it was really interesting because she's kind of aspirational and she's presenting the idea of a career to young women as desirable and elevating the work that women are already doing in the public sphere as important as the domestic sphere. We talked about how toys had been preparation for housework and nurturing. Right, you get your toy mop and broom. But this was something else. It was like, hey, you could do this too, which I think is kind of cool. And then in 1963, there was business executive Barbie. Everyone cites the 1980s as the first time that there was a businesswoman, but that's not true. Career girl Barbie was around in 1963. I'm sure Ruth Handler had something to do with that. Oh, yeah. So we were debating like the Equal Pay Act and Equal Rights Amendment, all these things. And here comes Barbie in this adorable tweed suit. It really is the cutest. And she has matching hat. Very, very cute. And of course, stilettos. And then in 1963, which was apparently a very busy year for Barbie, there was college graduate Barbie. And to quote Good Housekeeping, she may not be protesting on campus, but Barbie is progressive nonetheless. And she's got on the traditional cap and gown, and she has a little diploma, which we've not seen in a million years for Barbie. Interesting. And then in 1973, 
there's Surgeon Barbie. That to me is really interesting because that is still seen as a male role. Like and even with half of all doctors being women. Not half of all surgeons though. Yeah. It is a very much a boys club that's going to change in the next 30 years, but it is like the last bastion. <laughs> she came with a stethoscope, surgical cap and mask and a surgical smock. Her shoes were still heels because she does have those feet, but these are like almost practical. Like they're very low and they're like just plain white shoes like i thought that was interesting because they didn't make her wear dopey little pointy toe stilettos to be a surgeon and she was like an astronaut eight years before that she was and she had flat boots for that and there's like gloves and a helmet and a full silver fabulous david bowie looking spacesuit. of course and she came with an american flag to plant on the moon she just looked like a gemini astronaut <laughs> i know you wanted to be david bowie <laughs> but that's what the gemini astronaut suits looked like they were sparkly. Yes, they were shiny silver. What are the orange things? Nowadays. Why do they get less fabulous? <laughs> we just saw these suits in the Smithsonian like a month ago. I thought those were like dress uniforms. Oh my God. <laughs> and then in 1974, she was Miss America. Is this her in Duval? Uh, no, but you can see that it's definitely not the feminist making her be progressive. But the year that they introduced her, like the Miss America Barbie, the woman that won was called Rebecca King, and she went on to become a lawyer and a philanthropist. So not bad if you have to be Miss America one year. And then in 1976, she was an Olympic gold medalist, and this is long before Title IX and girls' sports being commonplace, and she's, like, adding that to her glamorous career path. And then in 1977, she was a fashion model. Devolving. She's devolving. And then in 1984, she was an aerobics instructor. All right. Fun fact, that's Toy Story Barbie. That is a fun fact. <laughs> then in 1986, she was a rock star. Yay. All right. And then in 1989, she was a UNICEF ambassador, and she wore a glittery ball gown. Cool. But she did come with a poster that said the rights of a child on it. That's nice. Yeah. It was the same year that Audrey Hepburn became a UNICEF ambassador. It was very chic, fashionable cause. And then in 1992, she became a presidential candidate. I would like to pause for a moment and discuss the history of Barbie and her presidential bids. But why? <laughs> I'm sorry. This is the intersection of like my two weirdest interests as children, Barbie and presidents. <laughs> We're so lucky. So beginning in 1992, Barbie started running for president. And she hasn't really stopped running since. Pause. Hillary Shade. <laughs> so her first bid coincided with a race between Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush, and... The guy with the ears. Ross Perot. That's right. So if Ross Perot can run for president, so can Barbie. And in this incarnation of Barbie for president, she wore a big, sparkly, star-spangled ball gown. That's not running for president, Barbie. That's just patriotic, Barbie. But she did come with a red business suit for, you know, presidenting. Okay. <laughs> Yay. In 1996, she did not run for president. And I like to pretend that she was a cabinet member, maybe the Secretary of State. And she and Clinton had obviously reached an agreement that she would not challenge the incumbent from her own party. Is this what you and Odette were doing in her room the other day? No. Maybe. Did you make Maui Bill Clinton? You're welcome. You're welcome. 
I was wondering why Maui was holding a saxophone and had sunglasses on. Look, it was a real low point for him. He really needed to get the youth vote out. And Colored Ken was standing there. There was never a Colored Ken. His name was Steven. So in 2000, this is the year of the recount, right? So Barbie's back in it. Obviously, third party candidate ruining things for everyone. In this incarnation of Barbie for president, she has like, you know, the lady politician haircut. Also the lady news anchor haircut. Like the Hillary Clinton haircut? Yeah, from from the the 90s. Yeah, that one. And she's got on like a blue suit. And they give her pantyhose, which I'm like, come on. But anyway. But this time she's wearing like a real live business suit. She's not in a ball gown anymore. We've realized that was silly. And then 2004, that's Bush versus Kerry. And the most notable thing about the 2004 President Barbie is that she's wearing a pantsuit. All the other ones have been skirts. But this one is a pantsuit. And then in 2008, we get Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin Barbie? Oh, God, probably. I bet. But we do get Sarah Palin running on a major ticket. And this is the year that Barbie looks tarted up. Do you know the difference between a bulldog and a vice presidential candidate is? Lipstick! It's lipstick! It's lipstick every time! It's lipstick. It's lipstick. Lipstick. No! This Barbie forgot her lipstick. This Barbie does not have lipstick. This Barbie has lip liner and like white lip gloss and some glittery ass makeup that goes all the way up to her eyebrows and she's even got glitter on her suit. This is a thing that says women in politics cannot be taken seriously. The year that the woman in politics could not be taken seriously. (laughs) I find her a very interesting artifact. And then in 2012, they like get a fashion designer to come in and design their President Barbie candidate. She's beautiful. And then in 2016, something interesting happens. Mattel decides to sell a gift set with two dolls. And one is running for president and one is running for vice president. I've seen this one. We found it in the clearance aisle. I know I wanted it and you wouldn't let me have it. I'm still mad at you. It was very sad. It was like. Come on there. Come on. Just go with me here. This gift set was in the clearance aisle in Walmart. In the beginning of December, right after the election last year. Yeah. It's good. (laughs) There's a picture of me holding it crying somewhere. I'll definitely post it. Okay, now that I'm um, awash in sadness, let me tell you about this gift set. So it was an all-female ticket, which is cool, because that's never happened before. So Barbie's being progressive again. And it's also interesting because there are different combinations of dolls. It's not like one Barbie is always running for president and her friend is always running for vice president. There might be a one with black Barbie running for president and Hispanic Barbie running for vice president and another one with blonde Barbie running for president and Hispanic Barbie running for vice president. And they're sold in like every combination and they just have like designated outfits. But of the 2016 Barbie Ticket USA Today quoted Lisa McKnight, the general manager and senior vice president of Barbie and Mattel. The president, vice president dolls continue our efforts to expose girls to inspiring careers that are underrepresented by women. We see this doll set as a timely and topical platform to further the conversation around female leadership. Mattel also partnered with the women's leadership group She Should Run on creating a worksheet about women in politics that would be available on their website. Now, the PDF is pretty charming. The headline reads, Barbie celebrates the next generation of leaders, girls. There's a section called What Do Leaders Do? And the list is as follows. Speak up, stand up for what they think is right, listen to others, and use their best judgment. 
be a voice for others. There's a campaign speech writing prompt and a campaign button template and a word search and a maze and a space to draw yourself as a leader. Oh my God, you would have loved this when you were eight. Oh my God, I would have run for president if I'd had this when I was eight. By now, I would be like, I'm not allowed to yet, <laughs> but I'd be planning. But it's kind of one of those one-offs. Well, it's a very recent development. It is, it is. But, you know, we're kind of talking about the 80s and the 90s. There's this very gendering of the toy world. And you can really see that in some of the careers that Barbie chooses. And she has some great careers. She's a doctor. She has other science roles. But in these particular times, she's a pet doctor. Mm -hmm. Or she's a baby doctor. Mm-hmm. Or she's a dentist, but she's a pediatric dentist. Or an art teacher. Yeah. And so even though she has these more high-profile roles, they're very nurturing roles. Mm-hmm. Yes, very like acceptable careers for women. And an idea that we see in those early toys from the 1920s, revitalized again in the 80s and 90s in these kind of Barbie's choices are that girls are good at nurturing roles. Boys are good at math, engineering, science. Yeah, where's that come from? Where's it come from? Science. Oh, so boys decided it. No, actually. (laughs) So, for example, one recent study from the City of London College said... Biological differences give boys an aptitude for mental rotation and more interest and ability in spatial processing, while girls are more interested in looking at faces and better at fine motor skills and manipulating objects. Do they have any data to back that up? So, some of this is based on these older studies. So, the face recognition thing. Sheep can do it, but We're not, not boys. Going there. Okay, sorry. So it's based on this ridiculous study called the Mobile Study. Like a mobile, like a baby mobile. Oh, like the things that people used to put over cribs before they were deemed unsafe and taken out? Yes. Okay. So in this study, a researcher would hold up a mobile and look at the baby and then register how much time the baby spent actively looking at either the mobile or the person's face. Oh, this this sounds like utter bullshit. This sounds like a science experiment I would have designed for my sixth grade science fair. So they thought this would prove empathizing versus systematizing. Oh, this is ignorant. So if you would look at a face longer, you'd be more empathetic as babies. Versus if you looked at a mobile longer, you would be more systematizing. I'm sorry. (laughs) Is there even proof that those things are true? No. (laughs) Also, the thing is that the two stimuli were presented at different times. Of the day? Just not at the same time. Oh, no. No. I really did not understand that. We've talked through this experiment before, and that makes it, like, absolute bullshit. Well, plus... You have experimenter bias, so you actually have the researcher. It's her face. No. She's looking at the baby. And so she's like sitting there stone-faced when it's a boy and like da-da-da when it's a girl. Yeah, and no matter how much you try to make the same face, you can't. You just can't. There's just human nature. There's micro-expressions, etc. So the only way to do this study would be, you know, to have like a, a recording, video, yeah. recording, you know, something like that. But she would use her face and just look at the baby and see how they engage. Was this done in 1942? It's an older study. Oh, plus 
Babies don't see well and focused on contrast and movement. So while the study seems easily debunked, it's been used to justify, well, everything. Are you serious? Like, this is where the girls struggle in science. This is its origin. Comes from the... Well, she struggled with science. (laughs) True. Well, this is more the origin of that girls are more... Emotionally intelligent. Emotionally intelligent. And like to look at faces more. That's where this comes from. We'll get to the other one in a second. So, in the book, Why Aren't More Women in Science? Baron Cohen suggested... From the newborn study, that the bias in attention to things rather than emotions (parentheses in boys) and vice versa (parentheses in girls) reflects partly innate differences that culture then amplifies. Sex differences in the empathizing versus systematizing bias, Baron Cohen argues, suggests that we should not expect the sex ratio in occupations such as math or physics to ever be 50/50. If we leave the workplace to simply reflect the number of applicants of each sex who are drawn to such fields. Cambridge academic Peter Lawrence cited this study, arguing that men and women are constitutionally different, and thus unlikely to ever become professors of physics and literature in equal numbers. These are, of course, older writings. This reminds me of the obstetrician who said that a woman's brain is too small for intellect, but just big enough for love. Oh, that's the obstetrician whose statue is being taken down for doing multiple surgeries with no anesthetics on slave women. That one? Yeah, that's him. Okay, just making sure. Good God. So this empathizing idea that girls are better at empathizing has, of course, been, quote, proven in further studies after this landmark study. But psychologists Nancy Eisenberg and Randy Lennon found that the female empathic advantage becomes vanishingly smaller as it becomes less and less obvious that you are actually trying to assess empathy. So in self-reported studies, we were questionnaire began, studies have shown that women are better at empathy or like have greater empathy they will express greater empathy. Well, so that is true because it's like a self-biasing in studies. So if someone tells you girls are really bad at math, we're going to give you this math test. Let's see how you do. You will do worse than if you took the test and someone said, I recently did a study showing that women are really, really good at math. Here, have to go on this test. That's been proven time and again. There's a lot of really interesting studies about that. It's not as a powerful in other countries but on this test all you had to say was that you were testing empathy because it's general knowledge that girls are more empathetic you don't have to prime them they already are primed from life so smaller differences were seen when the purpose of the testing was less obvious and no gender difference was found for studies using unobtrusive physiological or facial gestural measurements as an index of empathy what does that mean it means that first they're using other factors to judge empathy instead of just saying if you saw a dying dog on the road what would you do care for him always but and name him Percy. exactly but it's also interesting because that is what the researcher from the mobile study was saying she was doing was using this kind of facial recognition so almost like micro expression, kind mm-hmm. of like they mm-hmm. would show him faces and be like, what's he feeling? Yeah, things like that. So in other words, women and men may differ not by actual empathy, 
but in how empathetic they'd like to appear to others and maybe even to themselves. So men like might try to appear emotionally deaf because they're supposed to be. Or not as sensitive. Right. Because there's a stigma against that too. Exactly. And so the other side of this coin, so girls are empathetic. Mm -hmm. The other side is that boys are systematizing. Uh Uh-huh. And the big thing in that study, it said it, and what they'll always point out is this idea of mental rotation. Yeah. And so that's being able to take a 3D object and turn it around in your brain to see it from all angles. Okay. Like in sewing? Well, yes, but in general, in anything. So I'm sorry. It's just like that's what there are so many things that are like women's work that require that ability. Like I'm doing air quotes, like women's work, like sewing is one of those it's really hard to imagine what you're going to have at the end. Like if you want to make a garment, you have to deconstruct it and twist it from all angles and figure out how the pieces fit together. And Well, so let's take apart what they're saying. So in these mental rotation tests, they will give you this unfamiliar three-dimensional shape made of little cubes and four other similar shapes. Two of these are the same as the original, but have been rotated in three-dimensional space. Two are mirror images. So the task is to work out which two are the same as the target. So mental rotation performance is the largest and most reliable gender difference in cognition. In a typical sample, about 75% of people who score above average are male. So this is why men are so good in science and engineering and math. So really, genuinely, men are better at this. Well, (laughs) the thing is, this is a trainable task. So just... Like, think of all the brain booster games. That advertise on other podcasts? And NPR and whatever. And they say, we're going to make you smarter. Do this. It'll keep your brain going. What they actually do is they teach you how to play that game. Okay. So you get better at that game. So this is something that men are exposed to from a young age because people keep thrusting science and engineering based toys at them, basically. Yeah. And video games and stuff. Well, right. I mean, just think of any kind of, you know, like Legos and other sort of engineering type of toys. Erector sets, Yeah, that are just kind of advertised towards boys. And like I said, if you're asked to perform a task or test and you're primed with gender or race or other things, you will perform more poorly. So one study that was done at a liberal arts college. Mm -hmm. These are... Women who are aspiring to get college degrees and have already made it to college and it's small liberal arts college. So chances are there's going to be more openness to the idea of gender equality and people are not going to want to represent themselves as less capable. Right. But in a study, if they started off saying, you know, we know women don't do as well on this test as men, but we want you to try it. They perform less well than men. <laughs> But if they remind, just reminded them that they were at a selective liberal arts college, they got a performance boost and scored significantly higher than the gender-primed women. This is terrifying. This makes testing, so, like, that's a whole different story and a whole different can of worms. Oh, my God. Isn't testing terrifying? Oh, yeah. It's so biased. Every time you have to put your gender, fill in your little gender bubble, you're getting primed. And your race bubble... Which is so bullshit. I'd put other. <laughs> My friend would put Cajun. Because <laughs> he's a dick. And I love him. 
So some people do like to point away from culture and say this is more than just our culture. This is how we are born. These are the hormones that are aligning our brains in certain ways. Mm-hmm. To where we are primed to play with girl toys and boy toys. Let boys be boys. They've done a lot of studies with monkeys. Who have hormones. And toys. Who do not have hormones. No, I don't think so. Not yet. Maybe one day. So one classic study, they took monkeys and gave them two boyish toys, two girlish toys, and two neutral toys. Uh-huh. And they measured how long each monkey spent with each toy as a percentage of total toy contact time. Now, both male and female monkeys spent about a third of the total time with the neutral toys. Males spent about another third each of their total playing time with the other toys. Now, by contrast, females spent more time with the girlish toys than with the boyish toys. Okay. What were the toys? Oh, well, the boy toys were a police car and a ball. The neutral toys were a book and a stuffed dog. Why was a ball a boy toy? Why was a car a boy toy? (laughs) The girl toys were a doll... And a pan. Okay, I have so many questions. What the fuck is a monkey going to do with a book? You can flip through it. Look at the pictures. Okay, cool. Then also, a ball as a boy toy is kind of bullshit. The The gendering of toys in this study is ridiculous. Like a pan? A pan. Monkeys don't cook. Even thinking that a monkey would have an idea of what a pan was... Out of the context of our social constructs and cooking is ridiculous. So when researchers took the study and divided the stimuli in different ways, creating the categories of animate toys, the dog and the doll, Mm -hmm. with object toys, pan, ball, car, and book, they found no difference between the sexes. Oh, and the the female monkey should have wanted to mother the shit out of they that dog have. or whatever, you know? Where's the nurturing? They're like, this is not mine. Fuck this. <laughs> and there are several studies showing that females are just as interested in wheeled toys as they are with plush ones. Play no less with one or the other compared to males. It's like our kids definitely... Like, Remy loves stuffed animals. Like, our son loves stuffed animals. Yeah. And our daughter loves cars and blah. We've let them play with everything because we have such a mix because they're both so little. There's never been any division. We've tried to buy things that they would both play with. And I've watched what they play with. You know, like, I was the third in a line of three girls. All Everything at my house was pink. But it's been interesting to watch, like, how they'll interact with each other's toys. And there's they're both interested in everything. Some studies do show that there's some correlation between early testosterone and late gendered play behavior in children, but it's a mild correlation. Well, and couldn't, I mean, that could be based on a variety of factors. That could be a socialization issue as well. True. So 30 years ago, primatologist Francis Burton said the effect of fetal hormones in primates may be to predispose them to be receptive to whatever behaviors happen to go with their own sex and the particular society into which they are born. So Melissa Hines pointed out that this would provide a very, quote, flexible design. And this would enable new members of the species to develop sex-appropriate behaviors despite changes in what those behaviors might be. 
So this would be more adaptive and very advantageous. So that would mean like if whatever the cultural roles were, wherever you were born, the hormones might allow you to kind of find your tribe more easily, like figure out which you were, like which side of the society you should be on almost. Where where your place is in society. Okay. So the primatologist said that while hormones are the same throughout these different species, there's no universal pattern to how the different tasks of the society are divided. So if you take something like infant care, nurturing, the thing that is always deemed as kind of the women's role when you look at these kind of things, you see that this role can be divided up very differently in the same species in different groups in different parts of their habitat. So almost like different cultural groups within a species. Yeah. So like Maquis monkeys in Gibraltar would observe that the head male was always very intimately involved in the baby care. He's sniffing and licking, caressing, patting, holding, chattering to, encouraging little baby monkeys to walk. That's adorable. It's precious. And interestingly, when the head male is in charge of the infant, he would be followed by all of the sub-males. Okay. And they would imitate his role. Only the males would be doing this. So you would, they socialize into that gender role. And so this is not universal across all monkey... All mon- monkey monkeys, no. So it's this one group in Gibraltar in G- yes. that has decided this is the way we do things here. Exactly. Wow, that unravels so much bullshit social study. <laughs> that unravels like, oh my God, that unravels everything I've read about evolutionary psychology and I kind of love it. So there may be some little hormonal component involved. I like the idea that it is like a flexible kickstart. Yeah, and that's the thing is that these kind of tasks that people are oriented with is very flexible to go into either one, and they can be very easily overcome. If we go back to humans and we Mm. go back to little boys and little girls, and we look at something like spatial reasoning and mental rotation, It's very easy to overcome that role because it's a trainable task. And so toys are very important to children and play is very important to children. It's how they learn new skills. It's how they develop intellectually. Dolls and pretend kitchens are very good because they teach kids cognitive sequencing of events, Mm -hmm. early language skills. Building blocks, Legos, puzzles all teach spatial skills, which help set the groundwork for learning math principles down the line. So both genders truly lose out if we put kids on one track and they're not able to kind of explore both. And so these spatial reasoning skills that are tested are developed and honed prior to when one could even be tested for it. So boys are going to test higher if they're raised in a let's say with a big quotes standard Mm -hmm. social environment and we've talked about this before our brains are not hardwired when we're born they're extremely flexible they have what's called plasticity and our brain forms by changing to help with the tasks that we do so by training on these skills are not training on them. We are putting a hindrance on people. I want PSAs that talk about this. But you just see this type of research reiterated over and over again. Like I said, that quote 
that I said at the beginning, girls are better at nurturing, boys are better at spatial reasoning and science. That was a study that just came out that was reported in the BBC from the City of London College. Also known as people that should know better. People that should know better. So the other day, Jacob and I were on YouTube and we accidentally got propaganda. Oh, so much fun. It derailed our entire night. Like we seriously went to the channel and watched all of it. And it was by a conservative think tank and I can't remember the name of it or I would tell you about it so you could have this joy in your life. But then I'm afraid you would believe it and I would be responsible for that. And I couldn't have that on my conscience. But it was about how school systems are no longer favoring boys. How we've come to prize girls and the way girls think. And we're not letting boys be boys anymore. And it went into this long diatribe. Like it was like an 11-minute video. And we were so struck. Graphics. <laughs> we were so struck by it because it was just honest-to-God propaganda. Oh, without a doubt. And like, and I was like, I can't believe I'm seeing this in the wild. They just found me. What in our search history makes you think <laughs> that we want to see this? I did Google a lot of Confederate things uh, when I was working on that episode. Uh, so I think that may have been it. But it was like... You know, girls tell more emotional stories and boys write action stories, which are not as highly prized by teachers and all this stuff. And it's like school is just no fair to boys. There's a war on boys. And I was just sort of dumbfounded by the entire thing because the entire time I was in school, I felt like it was so the opposite. I remember being in math class. I took gifted advanced math and I was not a particularly strong student in math, not surprisingly. Because of things like this, I had this incredible teacher and I loved her to death and she was a brilliant, brilliant woman. And I was in a math class and it was just me and four guys because you had to sign up. It was an elective class. And she was like, not a lot of girls take this class. She's like, you can switch back to honors if you're more comfortable. Some of that is probably that you were blonde in your cheerleader uniform too. Yeah, that couldn't have helped. Cheerleader Barbie. I was the captain of my quiz ball team too. And that says so much. I loved Quiz Bowl. It was so much fun. We used to watch Faulty Towers in the van on the way to our, our competitions. I was a big nerd. I was also a cheerleader. I was Ruth Handler <laughs> and Build Lily. You're my Build Lily. Aww. <laughs> but you can watch people kind of trying to negotiate gender roles and toys and what we're supposed to do with toys and how toys are supposed to shape our identity. You can watch this play out over the century by following Barbie's controversies over the years. This is my favorite Barbie part. <laughs> Let's talk about how much they screw up. They do. They put their feet in it several times. Their little, their little pointy feet. So over the years, Barbie's single girl lifestyle was expanded upon and rerouted here, there, and everywhere. Now she met Ken and began going steady with him in 1961, and he was named for Ruth and Elliot Handler's son. Which is weird when you think about it. Hmm. hmm. I hadn't thought about it. Now I'm thinking about it. But they moved into their dream house in 1962. Then came the first blip on the She's the Spawn of Satan radar. When Barbie Babysitter, which came out in 1963, came with a book called How to Lose Weight. Why? For her to read when she was babysitting. Why? Do you know what it said inside this book? What? Don't eat. Why? I don't know. It's really funny, but I don't know. <laughs> then Slumber Party Barbie debuted in 1965, and she came with a little bathroom scale, which said 110 pounds. 
why? I don't know. This is why they were burning her at Berkeley. Then they were inhaling all those fumes. Which were not good. There was a series of Barbies recalled because their vinyl warped and it had chemicals in it that were kind of toxic. Anyway, Barbie began to have friends in addition to Ken because, you know, that wouldn't be healthy. She's never allowed to leave her dream home. She can only call it her dream home. It's like very big little lies until she gets some friends. But she does start to have friends. Uh, Midge is the first one who's introduced and she's her BFF. And then comes her little sister, Skipper. And then we get colored Francie in 1967. Why? And then Christy, another Barbie of color, follows a year or two later. Yes, the name Stomach Churning. Yes, it is. Now, there was some criticism that Francie and Christy did not have different facial molds. They were merely Barbie in a different color vinyl with a different color hair. Aww. Yeah. But been very expensive. And Ruth was all about streamlining that production. We've got to have those tiny clasps on the bras, though. We fought World War II so we can get the Japanese to make these clasps. I'm pretty sure she said that. So we discussed how she was burned at Berkeley. And I would like to tell you that this is still going on. When they opened the Dreamhouse exhibit in Berlin in 2013, a group of topless women protested the opening with, like, words painted across their breasts and stomachs and one of them climbed inside of this giant pink barbie stiletto and crucified a burning barbie and yes there are pictures google it yes you should google it not at work now around the time that women began burning barbie and she becomes the anti-feminist icon that she is today ruth handler steps away from mattel amid controversy and scandal what was this like embezzling or fraudulent investment or some some kind of financial crime. Very Martha Stewart. So without her leadership and in the midst of progressive women hating her anyway, Barbie got dumb, (laughs) to put it bluntly. Now, in the 60s and early 70s, Barbie went very mod at first. Like she kind of emulated the British fashions of the time. They even had a Twiggy Barbie. She was the first celebrity Barbie. But then she was like all about the, quote, alternative lifestyle, like the hippie thing for a minute and then that got really political like even just having her dress like a hippie became a statement oops yeah so she had like long fringed vests and peasant dresses and then she was like oh nope no more of that there are no genitals we can't have free love (laughs) exactly so when that was discovered we had to do something with barbie what are we going to do with barbie let's make malibu barbie clearly so in 1971 The first Malibu Barbie appears and she's like suntanned and she wears like very little makeup and she's smiling and the bitchy side eye goes away. And someone tell her she should smile more. Yeah. And get a tan. Yes. And her eyes face forward and feminists praise this. This is great. Barbie can actually look where she's going. I like the side eye. I do too. Fuck, she's like, bitch. I mean, she's a snob. That's Barbie's thing. She's like, bitch, I got a dream house and a dream spaceship. <laughs> what have you done today? I've been to the moon and gone shopping. The outlet malls on the moon are fantastic. Also blue rabbits, but you know, that's a different story. Different story. So the surfer sun worshiper identity may have gone a bridge too far with the introduction of sun loving Malibu Barbie in 1978. Wait, did she get a tan? Oh, there was that. That's a different one. That's later. No, it's earlier. My sister had that one too, and she fried. Like I think that's the one that the vi- that was recalled because the vinyl like leaked or something. Like she was, she was not in good shape by the time I got to her. But the ad copy for Sun Lovin' read: Sensational, 
The dolls with peekaboo tans, Barbie and friends, have real tan lines, as if they'd been in the sun. They're made for water play. Girls can take them to the beach, to the pool, etc. So yeah, they had tan lines that showed under their swimsuits. So we had boob tan lines. Did we have like speedo tan lines? Yes, for Ken, Ken had tiny little tan lines. Aww. And I only know about this. Like this isn't on anybody's like list of controversial weird Barbies or whatever. I know about this because my sisters had them. And one day I found the Ken naked at the bottom of the Barbie bin. It was like, the fuck? <laughs> Scandalous. But this wasn't the only noticeable change in Barbie universe. Skipper was growing up too. Well, this one just really inhabits Ruth Handler's idea of Barbie. It really does. In 1975, Growing Up Skipper was introduced. And she was advertised as two dolls in one, twice as much fun. And you rotate her arm, like kind of like a softball pitcher, rotate her arm. Okay. And, and when you do... grows up. She grows up. She gets taller. Yes. Her waist grows taller and she gets boobs. Aw, look at that. <laughs> that is a feat of engineering. A man must have done that. <laughs> I just can't believe she existed. Like, every time I look at her, I'm like, you're so weird. You can definitely Google that commercial, too. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I like to imagine that after her introduction, there was a host of 14-year-old boys trying to spin their girlfriend's arms. No, really, I saw this on TV. (laughs) This really takes that pitcher second base analogy further. I also, in addition to imagining boys, like you know, trying to helicopter their girlfriend's arms. I'd like to imagine that this is what boys think happens when they're like their girls who are friends go away for the summer and come back hot. They're like, she must have spun her arm, dude. <laughs> must have. A year later, Barbie and Ken were included in the official United States Bicentennial time capsule. And then came the 80s. We were hating on the 80s so much recently. Don't you have to, though? Like, aren't you supposed to, like, think that the time when you were born is when everything went to shit? So Barbie embraced scrunchies, leg warmers, consumerism, all of it. She was very up for being the material girl. One article said, Day to Night Barbie, which was this Barbie that came in like an executive business suit, but also came with like a slinky going out at night outfit. Did she come with cocaine too? Basically. She came out in 1985 and somebody said she could have been reasonably described as yuppie Barbie. Now, the first, like, black Barbie, not friend of Barbie, but Barbie who is black, was introduced in 1980, and she is glorious. I love her outfit, and she's got awesome hair. She's got, like, a little fro. It's the cutest thing ever. Love her. And she also infiltrated the art world. She was painted by Andy Warhol in the mid-'80s because he was friends with a jewelry designer named Billy Boy. Billy Boy was one of the most accomplished Barbie doll collectors in the world. And when he was like, I would like to paint your portrait, says Warhol to friend. Dude's like, paint Barbie, because Barbie, c'est moi. Oh, God. <laughs> I bet it was in the worst fake French accent. I bet it was, too. <laughs> so then came 1992, known in political circles as the year of the women. And Barbie ran for president. But we also introduced Teen Talk Barbie. Oh, that was a good one. I believe I had one of these. Mine wore a denim jacket and a denim skirt with gold trim and had kinky, crazy, crimped hair. And she said phrases like, let's go to the mall. I love shopping. Oh, God. Math class is tough. Why? 
Public criticism in the American Association of University Women convinced Mattel to remove the offending phrases from Teen Talk Barbie's repertoire. A group called the Barbie Liberation Organization said that all talk girls that it was more important to be pretty than smart. They switched out Barbie's voice box with a G.I. Joe so that the blonde cried, Vengeance is mine! That is the best protest I've ever heard of. While the warrior enthused, Let's plan our dream wedding. Cool. (laughs) Many boys that were forced to play with G.I. Joes finally enjoy their toys. (laughs) Then came Share a Smile Becky. Now, Becky used a wheelchair, and she was meant to be an inclusive gesture to all girls who use wheelchairs. However, her wheelchair did not fit inside the elevator in Barbie's dream house. That's too bad. And she could not (laughs) access any of her vehicles. No Americans with Disabilities Act for Barbie. No. Then Barbie got even more like that in the 90s. We get Totally Hair Barbie, which remains one of the best-selling Barbies of all time. And Gymnast Barbie. Side note, I had a 1996 Atlanta Olympics Gymnast Barbie, and she was my fucking favorite. (laughs) And my dad told me not to open her because she'd be worth a lot of money one day. I know where your dad got that idea. Where? Where? They're like best friends. Oh, no. Joan started collecting Barbies way after this. Oh, well, okay. So your parents, like buddies, they're friends. They're old people friends. Yeah. (laughs) Entire house. Covered. Is covered in Barbies still in boxes. And like not the collector edition Barbies. All of them. All the Barbies. And she did start the collecting way after this. But yeah, my dad's still mad that I opened her. But she was my favorite. And there was Mermaid Barbie and Generation Girl Barbie, and they were all very popular. And then there was a totally styling tattoo Barbie. You got to put the tattoos on her. That was the deal. But there was one that looked like it was meant to be a tramp stamp, and it said Ken in a heart. That's too bad. Yeah. It was pulled from shelves because parents were like, this encourages girls to get tattoos, and that's immoral. Then came the Barbie, I can be a computer engineer debacle. This is the best. So this one really does make my skin crawl a little bit. In 2010, a book bearing this title debuted, and it contained a passage that says the following. Your robot peppy is so sweet, says Skipper. Can I play your game? I'm only creating design ideas, Barbie says laughing. I'll need Stephen and Brian's help to turn it into a real game. Look at that. (laughs) So yeah, I get that. I get the offensiveness of this. Barbie, being a computer engineer, actually consists of her drawing cute robot puppies and then getting her male colleagues to do the coding for her game. Just like, you you know this went through so many people before it was published. You know so many people read this book. And like that it didn't occur to anyone is amazing to me. But anyway, it was brought to Barbie's attention. It seems like it existed for like four years and then people got pissed about it too. Yeah, someone was like babysitting their niece and read it, I'm sure. Yeah. And Barbie did post an apology for the book, and it said, The Barbie I Can Be a Computer Engineer was published in 2010. Since that time, we have reworked our Barbie books. The portrayal of Barbie in this specific story doesn't reflect the brand's vision for what Barbie stands for. We believe girls should be empowered to understand that anything is possible and believe that they live in a world without limits. We apologize that this book didn't reflect that belief. All Barbie titles moving forward will be written to inspire girls' imaginations and portray an empowered Barbie character. Good for them. However, the internet had already taken notice and 
The book was reworked by Casey Filser and Miranda Parker and titled Barbie, I Can Be a Computer Engineer, The Remix. And they made a PDF available for download on the blog that Casey Feisler was running at the time. And the offending passage was altered to the following. Hey, your game has robot puppies, says Skipper, looking over her shoulder at the art. Robots are sweet. Can I play it? Well, it's not quite done, Barbie says, smiling. Really good games are made by a team of people. I'm doing some of the coding now, but Steven and Brian are helping too. There are lots of pieces to making a game, like art and music and storyline. Brian drew the puppy. You're a good artist, Skipper. Maybe you could be a graphic designer when you grow up. Skipper grins. I love art, but I really love science too. Physics is my favorite class. I think I want to be a physicist. Do you see how easy it is? Do you see? It's so hard. It's not hard not to be an asshole. Apparently it is. But anyway, then came Video Girl. A Video Girl is a, quote, actress who dances around in a bikini in the background of rap videos. But that aside, putting that aside, this Barbie had a real video camera. Cool. In her body. Like the camera was in her necklace and you could take videos of your friends and upload them to the web. Cool. And the FBI put out a warning that this doll might be a danger. What? Because of child pornography. Why? And once they said it, I was like, oh, God. Uh. (laughs) Probably right. Ew. And then in 2015, they launched Hello Barbie. Using similar technology to Apple's Siri, Mattel launched Hello Barbie in 2015, a technologically advanced version of Teen Talk Barbie that had the capacity for two-way conversations. Hello Barbie has a microphone and a modicum of artificial intelligence that means the more she is spoken to, the more appropriate her responses are. However, an internet security firm expressed concern over the potential for Hello Barbie's servers to be hacked, meaning hackers could take over the home's Wi-Fi network and access other devices, as well as potentially eavesdropping through Barbie's microphone. Nothing is safe. Why do we have to make everything smart? In quotation marks. Why? In 2014, Barbie appeared on the cover of the 50th anniversary of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, with a tagline that said, The doll that started it all. This is the worst idea ever. And then Barbie started using the hashtag unapologetic. Barbie doesn't need hashtags. It was like, we're going to own it. And then everyone was like, no, don't. <laughs> like collectively, the internet was like, what the fuck are you thinking? And this is referred to as po- the post-feminist Barbie moment. <laughs> but there's this sense now that Barbie's just not as popular as she used to be. And it's probably because her target demographic is very busy playing on their iPhones and iPads and things like that. Kids don't play with toys as long as they used to. And she really was marketed to like 9 to 12-year-olds. And then she became popular in different demographics. But when you lose part of part of your audience, what do you do? And Time Magazine's Charlotte Alter sympathized with Barbie, suggesting, It's hard not to feel sorry for Barbie. Ruthlessly attacked, snatched out of the hands of six-year-olds by politically correct parents, and usurped by fishnet-clad hussies with none of the dignity of professionalism. She's talking about, like, brats and Monster High and things like that. Barbie dutifully keeps paying the insurance on her Barbie glam convertible and the mortgage on her Malibu dream house. And she imagines that Barbie's boring because she's just a real adult. And why would you want to be an adult when you can be in this extended adolescence? Or a princess. Either one. Or a superhero. Or a computer engineer. If I can get some help from my boyfriends. 
cool. In looking at these controversies, it's easy to kind of look at our broader culture for a minute and say, like, no wonder. Even today, we're having so many debates about what women's roles in society should be and what's acceptable for them to say and how we should treat them. And until we can kind of all come to a consensus about what women are allowed to be and how we're supposed to interact with them, we're certainly not going to let this opportunity to critique a doll who's supposed to be the embodiment of American femininity pass us by. She represents all kinds of aspirations and standards and the evolving roles of women in America. And bitching about Barbie is easy. And like, if we're being completely honest, it's kind of fun too. Such a soft target. (laughs) Yes. And maybe the amount of criticism she's garnered and the amount of hostility she encounters might speak to a larger dissatisfaction and a deeper tension about what women in general in society mean. And this kind of coming to terms with women as equal and being in the public space. Not to make Barbie too profound, but maybe she's a metaphor. The doll's a metaphor, Sam. The doll's a metaphor. But what about Ken? We've forgotten all about Ken. Have we? Yeah, like everyone does. Doesn't everybody? (laughs) Yes, that's his job to be forgotten about. Now, Ruth Handler originally resisted the idea of making a male counterpart to Barbie because Barbie wasn't about that. Barbie was an independent entity, but she was talked into it just as she was originally not a fan of the idea of Barbie coming with housekeeping supplies, but was eventually talked into that too. But Ken's never been as popular as Barbie and recently his sales have really tanked. The last decade or so, we've seen girls like more interested in ideas of like female friendship and, you know, like having a group of friends and Ken doesn't have hair to fix. And like, really, what are you going to do with Ken? Also, like you said, older girls are now not interested in playing with toys and younger groups of girls are now playing with Barbie and thus Ken or they would be. But really, Ken, as we know from Toy Story, is just an accessory. And definitely a girl's toy. And what is that like? Imagine for a moment what a day in Ken's life is like. He's a full-grown man who is a toy for little girls. I mean, we've seen Toy Story. Yes. It's hilarious. Such a fantastic meditation on what Ken's identity crisis must be like. But with these countercultural revolution in the 60s and 70s, you you do see it reflected with the... People protesting against Barbie, burning Barbie, people going later and changing the voice boxes out, which is genius. (laughs) But you also get this fun novelty toy that really hails back to Bill Lily. And this is Gay Bob. Yay, Gay Bob! (laughs) Gay Bob is my favorite. I looked to see how much it was on eBay, and it was like $100. So I decided I did not need one. (laughs) But you do. But you're wrong. Let's get a Build Lily and a Gay Bob and be happy. (laughs) So the initial advertisement says, Come out of the closet with Gay Bob, the world's first gay doll for everyone. He sits. He stands. He gets into any position. Oh, good. And since he's anatomically correct. No, he's not. He can even play with himself without no. glo- without going blind. No. Gay Bomb is a big 13 inches tall. Wow. And made of plastic. Or plastique, if you're very elegant. Oh, God. He comes dressed in mucho macho plaid shirt, blue jeans, 
that open with a smart snap to reveal his private parts, boots, and naturally, one earring. No. (laughs) He lives in a closet and has his own storybook, fashion catalog, Barbie and Ken move over. Gay Bob is here. For nineteen fifty, you can get one Gay Bob, RB Funky, and send $35 for two dolls. <laughs> Sorry, dear. No COD. Money orders ship same day. Now is the time to send for Gay Bob for everyone on your Christmas list. Two, Out of the Closet Incorporated, New York, New York. Get it, Gay Bob. So Gay Bob was the brainchild of former advertising exec Harvey Rosenberg and was touted as the world's first gay doll for everyone. The Village Voice said, Dressed in blue denim and plaid shirt, this 11-inch vinyl creation is neatly coiffed, wears one earring, and sports a full-fledged cock. I've seen other so-called anatomically correct toy male models, but all of them had nothing more than tiny, ill-defined, meek protuberances stuck on the crotch. Bob, however, is as well hung as his arm, which makes him the first doll that can actually grab on and play with himself. Oh, where? What other anatomically correct male model? Like, where are they sourcing this from? I'm sure they're around. Like a plethora of them. Now, wait, wait, wait! The advertisement said he was a whopping 13 inches. Yeah. This says he's 11. Oh gosh, I don't know. <laughs> Did he exaggerate his size? I wouldn't be surprised. It looked 13 inches in the picture. <laughs> Shut up. So Rosenberg said, getting him mass produced was not easy. American manufacturers objected. The only factory I could find was in Hong Kong, which created a crazy problem. For some reason, craftsmen there did not know how to design an authentic penis, so I had to send them over a life-size cast. Shut up. So he looks like a cross between Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Get it, Bob. He also comes with a wardrobe, a clothes catalog, a songbook, and, <laughs> and a book about his life. What's his life like? It says, hello, boys and girls. Gay people use the expression coming out of the closet to explain the fact that they're no longer ashamed of being gay. By the way, the box was a closet. Shut up. Now, plans for future dolls included Nervous Nelly and Neurotic Ned who'd gone through every therapy and came with a drug-filled medicine chest. Yes. They actually ended up making an anxious owl instead of neurotic Ned, by the way. I wonder why that change was made. I don't know. Marty Macho, a brother who lived in a garage with his four-wheel truck, Executive Eddie with attache case, Cordovan shoes, who has two martinis a day. Don Draper Barbie. Straight Steve, who lives in the suburbs and wears baby blue leisure suits. And fashionable Fran, a Jewish-American princess who <laughs> carries a pocketbook crammed with credit cards. And of course, liberated Libby. Rosenberg wanted Gay Bob to liberate men from traditional sexual roles. He created the doll soon after a series of shocks rocked his life. His marriage fell apart. He was not gay. His mother became seriously ill, and he decided that his next project would need to be of great personal significance. I decided that I had to change my life. I had to do something that was important to me. So he took $10,000 of his own money and put it into the Gay Bob project. So Gay Bob was essentially like a midlife crisis? Well, he said we had something to learn from the gay movement just like we did from the black civil rights movement and the women's movement. And that is having the courage to stand up and say, I have the right to be what I am. In two months, he sold 2,000 dolls, 
So, of course, Gay Bob had his detractors. No, I would assume he was universally adored from the moment he was born. Well, protect America's children, Mm. had to say, it's another evidence of the desperation the homosexual campaign has reached in its effort to put homosexual lifestyle, a death lifestyle, across to the American people. I can only hope that the children who are given these gay Bob dolls will not comprehend the meaning and intent of the campaign that is behind the manufacture and distribution. Were they really meant for children? No! I didn't think so. No, you are a wrong person if you give a child... A, a gay Bob dog. Because he has a giant cock. <laughs> <laughs> you can give him a gay doll. That's fine. Just Ken has been given to children all That's the That's right. That's right. Bruce Voller, the director of the National Gay Task Force at the time, said, It's a real giggle and kind of fun. I think we should deal with it lightly and enjoy it. So from Gay Bob's life story. Oh, this is his booklet, his informational yeah, booklet. Yeah. Game. Okay. Which also comes with songs, show tunes to sing. Right. Well, of course. Clearly. Gay Bob. Gay Bob. Gay people are no different than straight people. If everyone came out of their closets, there wouldn't be so many angry, frustrated, frightened people. People who are not ashamed of what they are are more lovable, kind, and understanding. It's not easy to be honest about what you are. In fact, it takes a great deal of courage. But remember, if Gay Bob has the courage to come out of his closet, so can you. Oh my god, that's so positive. Yeah, it's just a positive, fun little toy, much like Bill Lilly was. I bet Gay Bob sat in a cockpit or two. What kind of cockpit? I didn't mean it like that. I meant like the bachelors would put it in their cars and pilots had them and stuff like that. The build lilies. No, you're probably right. <laughs> it's so funny because like I definitely had some big metal Tonka trucks and dozers that my dad gave me as a kid. And I he played catch with me and like I would work on cars with him and you know, we had garden tools and all kinds of stuff like that. But when I would let my nephew play with my Barbies, it was always a bit of an issue. You're going to turn him into gay Bob. I'm going to turn him into gay Bob. This was the worry. I didn't. He's literally a narc. <laughs> but So you just caused him to fight against what you put into his system? Probably so, but like I would put makeup on him. I t- would tell him we were playing rock star, and I would like do his makeup crazy and stuff. It was a lot of fun. Um, hi, Garrett. Hi, Garrett. No one ever balked when I played with his toys, but it was definitely like a little bit more of a, huh, are you sure he wants to play that? <laughs> when we played with mine. And that's very true. You know, it's always been kind of okay for a girl to be a tomboy, but for a boy to play more what's deemed as like female games girl toys and girl games has always been kind of like uh it's gonna make him a sissy yeah yeah. in modern society you know in the last 70 years or so because a lot of these ideas we have for gender are very much within the from the 20th century fun once we got like mass marketing exactly so for centuries children wore like dainty white dresses up Mm. to the age of six years old and they looked amazing. <laughs> so Joe Pelodi did a lot of research on this and wrote a book, Pink and Blue, Telling the Girls from Boys in America. And she said that what was once a matter of practicality, you dress your baby in white dresses and diapers, white cotton can be bleached, became a matter of, oh my God, if I dress my baby in the wrong thing, they'll grow up perverted. It's so true. And if you want to watch an old lady, like, 
get very embarrassed, take an infant to the supermarket in gender neutral clothing. Oh, you're just going to mess their life up. Right. And then watch them go, she's adorable. And go, it's a boy. Even if it's not. Even if it's not, just say, oh, it's a boy. And they'll get very, very apologetic and nervous. It's funny. So those pink and blue colors, your classic, quote, boy and girl colors, came along 19th century, mid-19th century, along with other pastel colors for kids. But the two colors were not promoted as gender signifiers until just before World War I. A June 1918 article from the trade publication Earnshaw's Infants Department said, The generally accepted rule is pink for the boys and blue for the girls. The reason is that pink being a more decided and stronger color is more suitable for the boy. Well, blue, with its more delicate and dainty, is prettier for the girl. Other sources said that blue was flattering for blondes and pink for brunettes. Or blue was for blue-eyed babies and pink was for brown-eyed babies. Thanks. That's not what I expected you to say at all. <laughs> you got me. So this is the one thing. So I had to take a home ec class in college. Mm-hmm. And this was the one big piece of information that I got from that class that I was like, oh. <gasps> I learned something. You always learn something. But I I love this factoid. So in 1927, Time Magazine printed a chart showing sex-appropriate colors for girls and boys according to leading U.S. stores. Again, showing many department stores saying for boys to be dressed in pink as well as girls in blue. So today's color dictates weren't established until the 1940s as a result of commercial marketing. That is unbelievable that since the, just 1940, we have decided. Because like the idea of boys being in pink, everyone agreeing that that's what color boys wore is just so funny to me. You hear now there are terms like the pinkification of girlhood. And like, oh, yeah. I you know, know. It's such a thing. One place said the pernicious pinkification. Ooh. Which is great alliteration and, and use of your word of the day calendar. Yes, it is. So there are... Just like with toys, there was a backlash to feminine dressing in the 70s. -hmm. And again, looking at the Sears Roebuck catalog, they're able to see that in the 1970s, there were no pink toddler clothing for two years. None? None. Yeah, Remy even wore pink. I like pink on little kids. Ah, but one of the ways that feminists thought that girls were kind of lured into subservient roles as women is through clothing, says Pelotti. If we dress our girls more like boys and less like frilly little girls, they are going to have more options and feel freer to be active. So this is, at the time, you know, the feminism was fully buying into the nurture. It's 100% nurture, 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 nurture. I don't know if you've ever seen a three-year-old girl in a frilly dress, but they go through mud puddles too. Oh, yes. It's our, just the moms who freak out. Our laundry <laughs> proves that. And one thing that... Pelotti says might have contributed to this reversal of a trend where you start seeing the pink for girls and blue for boys again. This kind of coming back to it mm-hmm. is they start having prenatal testing to where you could tell if you were going to have a boy or a girl. It's true. And so everyone wants to buy you boy clothes. And if you have a girl, everyone wants to buy you the pink stuff. It's true. I'll admit it. When we went to have the sonogram done for Odette and we had already had a boy. I was hoping it would be a girl and I was dying to buy a pink shirt. Yeah, because it's part of our culture. And so it's very, very well ingrained. 
For example, in one experiment, researchers took toys that kids had not seen before, and they put them in either stereotypical girl boxes or stereotypical boy boxes. So you had the blue box, you had the pink. Girls played with the toys in the girls' boxes, and boys gravitated to the toys in the boys' boxes, even when they put the same toys in different boxes. Oh my god. Both genders focused on the toys in the boxes meant for their gender and did not pay much attention to the toys marked for the opposite gender. I know it's for me. I'm three years old, and I know it's for me. Right, and so we come back to that question, that nurture question. Is it all nurture? Is it all Is it all the parents' fault? Is it all your mother? The mother. The mother and of the father. Of course it's the mother's fault. Ma- well, yes and no. Oh, well. There's a little bit of everything, as there is no such thing as one or the other. (laughs) You have a combination of nature and nurture for almost everything. Whether one weighs more than the other is a debatable topic. I'm just wondering what else we could brainwash people into in, like, 40 years' time. I think we've seen plenty of brainwashing in the past year. (laughs) So we subconsciously treat coded Boys and girls differently, like you were saying. Right, like the little old lady who gets embarrassed at the supermarket. Exactly, exactly. So one experiment dressed toddler boys in obvious girl clothing and vice versa. And they were given... And then they were ruined for life? No. They were given toys and a volunteer to play with. In the video, and I'll post the video, the adults will offer the children the toys that kind of fit with their gender, that they are dressed for. And adults say they choose this subconsciously. So, like, if there's a, a coded boy, yes. a child that appears to be a boy. Yes. He's in, like, a truck shirt and some blue shorts. They will give him trucks and blocks. Right. And if it's a child in a dress with a bow, they will give her a doll or, like, a stuffed animal or something. Exactly. Exactly. And they're not even paying attention to what they're doing. No, no. It's completely subconscious. It's so funny to watch them talk and you know, have that kind of reveal. And they're like, I thought I was progressive. Yeah, this would... Pro- like, I'm thinking, like, would it happen to me? I'm not sure because I'd probably just give them crayons. I didn't see crayons in the room. Yeah. But, like... <laughs> Sorry. That's always my default go-to with new children. It's like, you want to draw something? Let's draw something. Yeah, and so that's true. Is a lot of people nowadays are trying to you know, raise their children without gender. Without it. Yeah, or trying to make sure they're exposed to toys of all gender and dress them kind of gender neutral and try to avoid all that pink and blue and boys play with trucks and girls play with dolls. So in one small study of 26 preschoolers from a southeastern city, when asking the parents, almost all agreed that the girls should be encouraged to play with building blocks and toy trucks and to play Little League and other competitive sports. However, when the researchers asked the children themselves whether their parents would approve of this kind of cross-gender play, they kind of hear a different story. Like For example, only a quarter of the three-year-old girls thought that their mother would want them to play with a baseball and a mitt or a skateboard, both of which the little girls readily identified as four boys compared with 80% of the three-year-old boys. Mm. You know, it's funny. What's that? Remy would have been like, nah. <laughs> nah. Nah. <laughs> I asked him, I was like, his friend was talking about like, oh, I'm a black belt in karate. I'm the youngest black belt and all this stuff. And I was like, that's awesome. I was like, Remy, do you want to do karate? He goes, no, I just want to go back to science camp. <laughs> that's my boy. <laughs> so you may say, oh, well, that's just in that one area. What about like a really liberal area? So there was a study done in a very... what would be considered a liberal part of the country, by Emily Kane. 
And she found that these parents celebrated and even encouraged gender nonconformity in their young daughters, saying, I don't want her just to color and play with dolls. I want her to be athletic, one father said. They also mostly accepted and often even celebrated activities they thought would promote domestic skills, nurturance, and empathy in their sons, including playing with dolls, toy kitchens, and tea sets. Although sometimes this acceptance was kind of done begrudgingly. However, even in these parents, there was evidence that this gender border was being carefully negotiated and patrolled for boys. Many parents drew the line at Barbie. (laughs) And Barbie was something that was regularly requested by boys. So one example was a father who said that he would ask his son, what do you want for your birthday? And he would kept saying, Barbie. So he compromised. And we got him a NASCAR Barbie. <laughs> Another father said that his son really wanted to dance. He said, I'd let him, but at the same time, I'd be doing other things to compensate for the fact that I signed him up for dance. What does he mean compensate? Like in a Freudian way? Like, let's go camping. Cool. Or other masculine things. We're, we've air quoted so much on this episode, y'all. <laughs> Sorry. So this is something I thought about with Remy a lot because... You know, we do live in the deep south. We are out of Austin. When we were in Austin, it really wasn't a big deal at all. But, you know, we're out of Austin. And I want him to do whatever makes his little heart happy. And I hate the rigid gender lines. And I know how if you don't conform exactly, especially in more rural areas of the state, like where I grew up, you're really given a hard time. And so, like, he would do things like when I was painting my toenails, he would ask to have his toenails painted. And I would paint his toenails or whatever. But my fear was always not that it was going to ruin him, but that other kids were going to make fun of him. Yeah. And that's always been a lot harder for me to overcome because, like, I have no problem. Like, if he wanted a Barbie doll, I'd give him a Barbie doll. But I don't want his friends to be mean to him because he has a Barbie doll. Yeah, it shows how ingrained it is in society in general and why it's so hard for some well-meaning parents even in very liberal parts of the country to walk that kind of gender neutral cross-gender line to raise their kids without the boy girl toys so one researcher said that it isn't as easy as giving a girl a ray gun and having a boy play with my little pony many parents have tried this to little effect Girls turned the trucks into families, and boys played catch with the dolls, and both sexes knew that there was something fishy going on. (laughs) And that's because by two years old, a child knows its gender, and it becomes more concrete as time goes on. Our three-year-old knows what bathroom to go to. (laughs) Right, and the other day, I made you take her because I'd taken her twice. We were at a restaurant, and I'd taken her like three times because she's very fascinated with going to every bathroom. We have toured every bathroom in the state of Louisiana, and I made Jacob take her, and he took her in in the men's room, and she flipped out. She's not happy about it. But the thing is that human children have this powerful drive to self-socialize into their gender roles. Just like we saw with those Maquis monkeys in Gibraltar, that they're going to socialize into what the other male monkeys are doing, children do the same thing. Even in the absence of encouragement by parents, they're attracted to the things and behaviors associated with their sex. But nowadays, everything's hypergendered. Super, yeah. Absolutely true. Everything. Like I said, the pernicious pinkification. So between ages three and five, gender is very important to children. So when children see these clearly divided, like 
aisles of the store boys are supposed to play with. This reinforces those gender cues, like pink and blue. And children are much more observant than people ever give them credit for. Mm -hmm. Try saying shit in front of one of them just once. See what happens. I knocked over a snowman and said shit. (laughs) And then my daughter kept saying shit about everything. So it's very difficult for children to ignore gender when they continually watch it, hear it, see it, play with it, or fed it, clothed it, sleep in it, everything. So it's very hard to raise someone in a kind of gender-neutral state without completely isolating them from the rest of society. You'd have to get society to agree to go along with it, basically. Everyone would have to Like, we'd all have to stop right now. Yes, Like, I'd have to stop wearing makeup, and you'd have to stop having facial hair or whatever. (laughs) Or you'd have to get some facial hair. I don't think I can. I wear pink all the time. I could rock a beard. Sure, bearded lady. When you see it, like in Target, you know, they said a few years ago, big announcement. We're not going to have girl toy aisles, boy toy aisles anymore. No. Go to a Target. It's all very coded. You still know. It's not labeled girls and boys, but there is a pink aisle, like in Toy Story. Right. Why are we on this aisle? Everything's pink. And Remy will just walk through board. You know, like he doesn't stop to look at those toys. He completely ignores them. Yeah, because he knows without us ever telling him that those are for girls. We even like make the point of saying like, there's no such thing as boy and girl colors. Mm-hmm. Used to always say that. And our little hippie babysitter was like, I think that's so great. <laughs> but so you see the same thing with the enculturation of like body types and things like that. And one of the reasons that Barbie is always lambasted so hard is they're saying this is going to code girls into thinking this is what you have to look like. Well, lucky for me, I played with Barbies when I was young and then I grew up to look just like her. Oh, you're right. Uh, ha ha ha. It's hilarious. That's a funny joke. Your blonde and blue eyes. We just need to put you on one of those medieval stretchers. Get you an extra. <laughs> and like inches. what? Like <laughs> surgically attached chickens to my chest. I mean, like, yes, exactly. I would need like a hen on each side. You'd fall over. So you may remember a time before there was an actual world-ending controversy every day. Like you might remember when things like Barbie introducing new body types for the dolls was covered and recovered and discussed at nauseum all over the internet and the world. Back in the good old days, before everything was on fire. It's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's it's fine. fine. It's fine. It's fine. So changes to Barbie's iconic and controversial body merited a cover story on Time magazine. I guess she didn't refuse the photo shoot. <laughs> But this took place in January of 2016, and they displayed the silhouette of the new curvy Barbie on their cover, and the caption was, can we stop talking about my body now? Nice. But they proceeded to not stop talking about her body. (laughs) The answer inside, no. So Eliana Doctorman wrote this piece, and it's really wonderful. I'm going to pull a lot of information from there. And she describes being brought in on this top-secret project at Mattel. She said the whole thing began with a challenge. The creative director said, if you could design Barbie today, how would you make her a reflection of our times? Like, basically, throw everything out of the window and start over, fashioned all, what do we get? She writes, 
I'm sitting in a bright pink room at Mattel's headquarters in El Segundo, California, playing with a Barbie that only 20 people in the world know exist. Her creation has been kept so secret that the designers codenamed the endeavor Project Dawn so that even their spouses wouldn't be tipped off to her existence. Then she describes the frustration of trying to dress the new curvy Barbie. She wants to put her in a standard Barbie dress, but it won't fit her. One of the three new body types that Mattel was introducing into the market. There was curvy Barbie. There was also a tall Barbie, which is... That blows my mind. She's very athletic. Like I look at her and I'm like, this is completely foreign to me. And then they also have a petite Barbie, which makes me happy. Less for <laughs> Like, seriously, every time I see one at the store, I'm like, I should get one for Odette. She would like that. <laughs> so this bold change was undertaken in response to a new media environment in which people were bitching directly at Barbie. You know, like tagging her on Twitter and bitching. We got tagged in a Barbie Instagram the other day. Oh my god, you didn't tell me? That's so exciting. I did. It was like, what podcast would Barbie listen to? And someone tagged us. And that I find that interesting. <laughs> Barbie has a dark soul. She does. She's been through a lot. It's true. There was also the problem of falling market shares. So there was a drop of 20% between 2012 and 2014 at Mattel. And some of that was because Lego became so popular because... They went with what everyone had been saying and started marketing to girls. And they market those Legos like crazy. It's insane to me that they weren't to begin with because there's nothing gendered about that. Because inanimate objects is blocks. Some of the classic Legos besides the city Legos were like the castle and the Viking Mm -hmm. and things like that. Like they were more what would be considered boy topics. But like, I mean, our little niece loved the Lego Friends stuff. Oh, yeah. And she's built all of it. But then they also lost the Disney Princess doll contract to Hasbro. Oh, damn. That same year. And Elsa was the most popular toy that Christmas. So, ouch. So they lost the top of the toy industry label to Lego, and they lost the number one selling doll to Elsa, and things were looking real shit. And so they decided it's time to do something. We must do something drastic. So Dr. Man goes on to address the ways in which beauty standards have changed in our culture, citing people like Kim Kardashian, Beyonce, and Christina Hendricks. You know, women with curves and women of color and people who do not come out of cookie cutter looking molds. If there was a Beyonce cookie cutter, I would sign up. (laughs) Just saying. I'd be okay with that. And then you had this shift in like body acceptance, like this big push for body acceptance. You had like the Dove campaign that came out years ago. And then things like Lena Dunham being naked all the time on HBO. All the time. All (laughs) the time. And then they started noticing that the millennial moms hated Barbie, had no interest in her, found her very frustrating and or boring. Evelyn Mazacoco, the head of the Barbie brand, says, The millennial mom is a small part of our consumer base, but we recognize that she's the future. I do all kinds of things for my kids that they don't understand or like, from telling them to do their homework to eating their vegetables. This is very similar, she says, of giving them Barbies with different bodies and different skin types and hair types. It's my responsibility to make sure that they have inclusivity in their lives even if it doesn't register with them. I think that's kind of amazing. And that's kind of the point. I think that people miss is there's the obvious surface layer of I want a Barbie that looks like me, which is great, which is definitely a valid ask. 
reason, yeah, yeah, valid reason for wanting these types of Barbies. But it's also that inclusivity, mm-hmm. having those other Barbie types around that makes it the norm. So many of the mothers in the four focus group that Mattel allowed Dr. Men to observe agreed with the direction that Mattel was taking. And they're the ones who buy the dolls. Young moms were the most vocal on social media when it came to Barbie's body. Mattel's extensive surveys show that moms across the country cared about diversity in terms of color and body, regardless of age, race, or socioeconomic position. The majority of the women from the focus groups I watched were middle-class African-American and Hispanic. And so the moms are looking at the Barbies in this focus group that she gets to watch. And one pipes up, I think she's cute thick. Another mom spoke up and said that she preferred her daughters to play with My Little Pony so as to avoid body politics altogether. And there was another woman who says, I wish she were curvier. There are shapes that are curvier and still beautiful. My daughter definitely has curves and I would want to give her a doll like that. It's a start, I guess. And then they watch the girls and they say that they like this curvy doll with blue hair the best like they keep going back to it that she's just the rock star and everyone's on board and super excited about it but if you ask the girls which doll is barbie they would still point to the blonde skinny original shape well of course it's the branding but the mom seemed to echo this girl's sentiment one said i brought my daughter to a christmas tree lighting with santa and barbie the other day if a black woman or a red-headed woman or a heavyset woman had shown up my daughter would have been like where's barbie so mattel refuses to discuss the doll's new dimensions, or how they decided on them. Like, in this huge expose, this is like the thing everyone wants to know, is the thing they won't say. But they decided it was important to change them, and that's interesting. But of course, things had to change to accommodate the new citizens of Barbie world. Right, like clothes. And these are the fashionista line. Like, it's a particular line that has these variations. And you can't have fashionista Barbies that are having a wardrobe. Right, goes back to the original, she's a fashion doll. Mm -hmm. And then they had to figure out this intricate social system that exists in the tween girl world, like of things like gifting politics. Like, what does it mean if you give your niece a curvy Barbie? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Are you saying my girl's fat? Exactly. So they decided that they would pack them in gift packs, in like sets. And they would have some that were like all the curvy dolls and some that were all the tall dolls and some that were one of each and some that, and they would mix the races and they would mix the sizes and they would just do that. And you could give people gift sets and they're really reasonably priced. That's good marketing. Smart. So as they were researching for this, I was reminded that in the 1959 focus groups or 58 before the doll premiered, there was a mom who was just sitting there like begrudgingly looking at this Barbie doll with the boobs, first doll with boobs, shaking her head and said, if only children could remain children a little longer. And I was like, God, that could be now. Oh, definitely. But the number one request has consistently been for Barbie to have a new body. Moms were more annoyed by the idea of there being a petite Barbie than a curvy Barbie. Why? It was like, she doesn't need to be any smaller. That's ridiculous. I know. They all universally objected to her being labeled short. They said, of course, that girls did gravitate toward the dolls that looked like them and were excited to see a wide representation of different looking people. But they loved the dolls that had like non-natural hair color, like blue or pink, purple, whatever. They were really into that. And they said that they worked mainly with moms because they still make the majority of toy selections for children. They're the ones paying. Well, instead of dads, they were like, why didn't you do focus groups with dads? They're like, because most dads would be like, get whatever you want. (laughs) 
What? All right, it's time to go. Get the get, one with blue hair and let's the, go. Get the one that's on sale. <laughs> True. Truth bomb. And then parents consistently said that they wanted wholesome toys for their children. Like, that was the thing. I just want a wholesome toy. And I think that's a way of saying Barbie's a little slutty. She has boobs. <laughs> Another thing they noticed is that kids will not say the word fat in front of adults that they don't know. Well, they've been taught that that's not a nice word. One girl was like looking at the Barbie and they were like, what's different about this Barbie? And she's holding it and she's like, she's a little F-A-T. And she like <laughs> looks at him and she goes, I didn't want to hurt her feelings. Aww. Sweet baby. I know. And she said that a lot of times when the parents would leave the room, the girls would undress the dolls and like giggle. If they were just given the curvy doll, they'd still have this response. They weren't necessarily comparing it, but they knew something about it was off. And it just shows that kids as young as six or seven already know what Barbie's supposed to look like and feel like. They've already encoded that into their their system, you know, and like this departure from it is jarring. But they're hoping by getting these on the market and having them around that eventually they'll just be another Barbie. So what is the ultimate goal of all this? Dixon, one of the executives of the company, says, ultimately, haters are going to hate. We want to make sure that Barbie lovers love us more and perhaps changing the people who are negative to neutral. That would be nice. Can we just take the heat off, please? So did it work? Did they do this and get universal accolades and acclaim? And did everyone put down their torches and their pitchforks? That's highly doubtful. No, this is from Women's News. But churning out dolls in new shapes and colors does not address the key issues that the focus is still on our bodies, our exteriors. We might have changed the look. What we haven't changed is the narrative. At her core, Barbie has always stood for her exterior appearance only, and a ridiculously unhealthy and shallow one at that. So it doesn't matter how they look, as long as they care about looks, they're the devil. So I was thinking about all of this, and I realized like Barbie's first real tumble in market shares was after Bratz, not after body acceptance movement. (laughs) And I was like, that's not abandoning Barbie for a more wholesome role model. That's even sleazier. (laughs) And then I realized that the way we think about dolls in general is really weird. And we're hypercritical of dolls. We do not attack boys' toys this way. Every once in a while, you get the, oh, they shouldn't play with guns and things like that. But it is not to the same degree at all like we're not picking batman apart and being like should they really emulate a man who goes out and practices vigilante justice because he can't cope with the loss of his parents is that healthy for young boys probably not no it's not it's a terrible role model i love batman i love batman you were literally wearing batman pajamas i'm wearing a batman onesie as we record this episode but that's beside the point like we are not up in arms over every male role model we don't bemoan the fact that spider-man action figures have a six-pack and that's going to give boys an unrealistic representation of the male form unrealistic ideals of beauty that's what you think are you sad i'm sad on those superpowers (laughs) me too so i wanted to make sure i wasn't crazy and i wasn't just imagining it so what i did is i went out and i looked for negative commentary on popular doll brands just to see what I found. And there's negative commentary on everything. <laughs> no, there's not negative commentary on the body types of male action figures I've looked. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like I got some writing to do. There you go. It's a niche. I found it. If you bitch about superheroes, you have to bitch about what the female superheroes are wearing and how they look. I don't have to. 
Could be picked up by the MRA movement quick. Oh no, I won't let it happen. So my first thought is like, what is the most wholesome, grade A, parent approved, age appropriate doll ever? Is it what Odette's getting for Christmas? Yes. It's an American Girl doll. Don't tell her. So American Don't Gr- tell her. She's also getting Moana Leggers. True. True story. So the American Girl dolls were originally called the Pleasant Company dolls, and each of them came from a different era of American history and came with a massive backstory. They're more expensive than Barbie, 100%, but they also came contextualized in, in their era and had historical reproduction fashion and props that were sold with them and were just kind of universally lauded by parents and educators as these positive toys for girls. So I went to go see if I could find someone bitching about them. And I did. Shocking. Shocking. So from the Atlantic, with greater focus on appearance, increasingly mild character development, and innocuous political topics, a former character building toy has become more like a stylish accessory. Radford says, I was really focused on the historical fictional stories of the dolls. My younger cousins seem to view their dolls as more of an item needed to be cool. They seem focused on having more outfits than their friends as opposed to connecting with stories. American Girl once provided a point of entry for girls who have matured into thoughtful, critical, empowered citizens. Now the company's identity feels as smooth, unthreatening, and empty as the dolls on their shelves. That's a doll burn. It's a doll burn. And then from the Washington Post. Dolls just like us? Is that really what we want? The image is embarrassing. Privileged, comfortable, with idiotic sounding names and few problems that a bake sale wouldn't solve. Yeah, they had one named Samantha. No, they mean the new one that's named Sage with an I. Oh, well. (laughs) Then people should stop naming their children that. (laughs) Exactly. Life comes to them in manageable small bites, pre-chewed, no big adventures, no high stakes. All the rough edges are sanded off and the real dangers excluded. It's about as much fun as walking around in a life vest. Yes, I know there are plenty of worse toys out there. Still, it pangs. These dolls were once standout. Of course, that's history and we've moved past that. So I get it because like, when I think about what went into creating the dolls... Originally, it was kind of amazing. Like when they introduced Addie, she was like the first new doll. And just for context, like originally the dolls were from different eras and they came with books and they had kind of their story representing that time period. Right. Like Samantha was Victorian. Kirsten was a pioneer girl. Molly was a World War II patriot with a victory garden. And then recently they've come out with like the... Just like me dolls. Truly me. Yeah, where they look, they're made to be like modern girls. Mm -hmm. And they don't have as historically interesting backstories. Well, so they wanted to introduce a black doll a million years ago when I was a kid. And they went about it in a really interesting way. She was added in 1993. And everything from her hair texture to her skin tone to whether or not they should include historical hate terms in her story was debated by a panel of experts convened from the world of African-American history and academia. And they had cultural experts brought in. Like They consulted with people who had written Newbery Award-winning children's fiction based on the African-American experience. Like All of this was debated and thought about. It took years. It took years to produce her. There's actually an incredible article from Slate written by Aisha Harris, The Making of American Girl, 
that follows this process and talks about the controversy and why they decided to have her escaping slavery as her backstory because they talked about like maybe a Harlem Renaissance doll would be fun and all of the professors rejected that outright and they're like if you want to talk about the African-American experience it has to start with slavery like doing anything but that is wrong so there's this huge amount of thought that went into these dolls and I see why they're complaining but still but when the dolls get more current and more realistic you know, like they're not contained in a different universe that you get to enter. Like when the play comes forward in time, they're immediately dismissed as stupid. Like they don't have real problems. They're just girls who do bake sales. That's so dismissive. I know. And then there's the Bratz dolls. And this is from Penn State's communications blog. Bratz dolls raised controversy in the consumer world over their fundamental campaign, which advertises small-bodied dolls with large anime-like eyes, giant, full, glossy lips, and tiny noses, dressed in provocative, some might even say slutty outfits, whose main concern in life is shopping. The implications of their over-sexualized image and seemingly mundane aspirations had many critics questioning why such characteristics were being catered to young girls, many of which were younger than the prepubescent stage. Yeah, and I just remember you bitching about this nonstop when it came out. I hated them. I mean, I really did because they, my niece got one as a gift and I read the back of the package, which was stupid. (laughs) I wanted to be angry, I guess. And it was a soccer themed Bratz doll in a midriff and booty shorts. And it said, it's not whether you win or lose. It's how great you look on the sidelines. Good role model. And I was like, this is bullshit. And even Lamely, and God bless Lamely, they tried really hard here. What's a Lamely? A Lamely is this doll that was made by a man named Nicholas Lamb because he rejected Barbie's proportions on behalf of women. So he, he mansplained, mansplained yeah, Barbie. Okay. Yeah. And so what he did is he took the scientific average proportions of a 19-year-old and made a doll using those proportions. She is average looking. Like she's definitely... Like, she's got, like, an ethnically ambiguous kind of tan skin tone. She's brunette. And she is marketed as being, like, the doll that really looks like me. But even this gets lambasted. She also comes with stickers. Like, stickers. Like, lamely stickers. No, to put on the doll. Like, tattoo, whore tattoo Barbie? Sort of, but they're stretch marks. Oh, okay. Or freckles, or bandages, or scars, or whatever. Okay, interesting decision there. Mm -hmm. Right. So here's the rub, they say. Packaging such features only works to enforce their status as imperfections, and controllable ones at that. Want to get rid of an ugly cellulite? Peel it off. Don't want a doll with stretch marks? Don't stick them on in the first place. Little girls are already taught that they can and should manage how perfect their body is, and these stickers only work to enforce dangerous and false messages. If the intent was to show that average bodies have things like freckles and scars and stretch marks, why not build those features into the fundamental design of the doll? Manufacturing cost. I wish my cellulite was removable. <laughs> like I, a sticker. Well, now you're damaged forever. I am. I think it was one Lamely is one of those things where it's like well-intentioned. Oh my God, it is made of good intentions. But the execution is is quite terrible. She doesn't have everything that Barbie has. Like, she doesn't come with all the stuff. And that's the fun of Barbie is that she has all the stuff. And it's very materialistic. I'm sorry. But it's true. It's it's all the accessories and things. But you can see just the good intention there. But that's not 
what people look like because we're not statistics. Right. We don't fall on a bell curve because we, as a human race, have different ethnicities and different body types and different hair types from all the places from around the world that we've come from. And we don't fall on a curve. And you can't just pick the average because it's not 64% of people that fall in the middle like if you were looking at a statistical model. This guy was focused too much on systematizing and not empathizing. (laughs) He looked at his mobile too long. That's the problem. You have hit on something there. So all the gender differences are real, you say. Um, Only when it comes to Lamely. To me, like she is intended to be this body acceptance mascot. That's what she is. I don't know that girls want to play with a body acceptance mascot or boys. This is what I think the gender differences in toys come down to. Is like, why is it that we're so comfortable picking these dolls apart? And like, why do we revel in it? We seem to believe that boys can deal with unrealistic, exaggerated bodies as kids and not spend their entire life questing to look like He-Man. I mean... I know three guys that did. I know a few people that might be. But they are bored. (laughs) Like, none of us have a problem believing that a man can become a judge if he doesn't spend his childhood playing with the judicial action figure set. But I do want a Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Hello. Gift idea. And we also believe that men can figure out how to dress themselves in appropriate, socially acceptable ways without having, you know, dressed a little miniature man doll for half their life. We don't think that these are lessons that men need to learn, but we fear that our girls will learn them. We're terrified that they're going to learn all of this from Barbie. They're going to learn the limitations. They're going to be cursed with body issues. They're going to be ruined. This is going to ruin our girls and make them stupid. But the way we judge Barbie is really kind of the way that we judge each other. And so maybe we don't need Barbie anymore. Maybe we have moved beyond her as a culture. We don't need to see Barbie running for president because we can see a real-life woman running for president. Maybe we don't need to use Barbie to imagine being an astronaut because we can just go be an astronaut. But man, I really love those tiny shoes. I loved the shoes. I loved braiding their hair. I loved dressing my Barbies. I loved going through my sister's old Barbie clothes and finding the ridiculous outfits Ken used to wear. He had a Western suit onesie. It was amazing. That's something I aspire to. But my Barbies were not aspirational. When I played with them, it was never like imagining that I was Barbie and that I was going to go do a certain job. Maybe I played with them differently because my Barbies were used to kind of put on like these soap opera stories. And they were less about what I wanted to be when I grew up. They helped me kind of figure out things that I was aware of, but not part of. Things that were just kind of out of my reach as a kid growing up in the middle of nowhere. In the mid-90s. In the mid-90s, without the internet. But I had a Barbie who was living with AIDS. Like, that was one of the storylines. Really? I did. I had seen The Cure and other movies like that. And I was, like, aware that AIDS was a thing and that it was bad. I decided that since that was a storyline on Lifetime, it would be a storyline with my Barbies. And then I had a one that was a teen mom who had to drop out of high school. And then I had one who joined a cult and her sisters had to go rescue her. And then I had a Barbie that was a psychic. 
And then I had one that had an eating disorder. But it was like all these things that were sort of the after school special fodder. You know, like these, the things that they were trying to educate us about, I guess, back then. I guess I use my Barbies like people have always used storytelling devices. You know, I use them to kind of deal with these very complicated issues that I was curious about, but didn't have real access to. To me, they were just these kind of empty vessels for storytelling. So maybe I'm a really bad example of how Barbies affect you. Because as I'm saying this, I am realizing that I do still spend a lot of time dealing with stories. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I do still spend a lot of time trying to work out things that I'm aware of, but not a part of or intimately acquainted with. So maybe it's not the toy that we see with kids. Maybe it's not them using the toy in the way that was an intention that will put this curse, this lifelong curse of reliving your childhood play on them. Maybe we're seeing like a real manifestation of who they are. Maybe that's the most honest you can ever be about yourself is you're, when you're a kid with a toy in your imagination and it's safe and there are no consequences and you can truly just play. And that's not just a story. It's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen.